Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and this is episode 160. I had a conversation with Hadassah Grace. She is a performance poet. I had uh, seen her perform at the end of last year, and I thought she was great. I'd read some of her stuff over the last couple of years, which I enjoyed, um, and I was always really keen to, I thought she'd be a great podcast, and then it was announced that she had a book coming out, so perfect timing, we're going to wait for the book. Now you're going to hear this um, conversation a couple of weeks before the book comes out, it's called How to Take Off Your Clothes, it's a book of poetry and uh, it comes out at the start of April, I'll have links for where you can pre-order it and she's doing a bunch of shows around the country to launch it. The um, The book's coming out through a thing called Dead Birds Press which is um, Dominic Huey aka Tourette's um, is one of the publishers of the book. So. Uh, Hadassah and I had this huge conversation about not just poetry, um, all of the things that have gone on in her life. She was born in America to, as she calls them, minor Christian celebrities. Her parents uh, recorded several albums of gospel and religious music, and then her father started up the uh, the Christian version of MTV, a music channel for religious music in the States. And uh, Then they moved out to New Zealand when she was about 10. Uh, they lived in Auckland, moved to Christchurch. Uh, and then she spent a little bit of time back in the States, but she's been a Kiwi for uh, the last 20 odd years. She's had some pretty interesting experiences. We talk about uh, all sorts of things in this podcast, including her, her time working as a sex worker, uh, her, her depression and, and basically how poetry was a big part of saving her through that and the, the urge to create, the need to create something every day to, to have a project and how poetry is a good single day project you can hopefully write a poem or two in a day so we talk about that she reads some of the poems so you'll get to hear some of the things before you buy the book if you're interested in it and uh, I love this conversation because uh, we as I say we had very briefly met at the end of last year we had both read at an event and so we had sort of had a quick chat afterwards and and said nice things about each other's poems but we really didn't know each other and I really felt a, a, a big connection in this conversation and uh, and talked about a lot of interesting things and what an interesting life of, uh, of survival, a lot surviving a lot of different things as you'll hear. So um, this is me and Hadassah Grace and check out her book and check out one of the shows if you can. Um, she's a fantastic performer so I hope you enjoy this. So we we don't really know each other, but we have met very briefly. Yes. I met you uh, a couple of months ago. I came and watched you as a guest poet. Yes, at a, and I watched you. Well, yeah, 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 that's true, in the sense that I dashed up as, as part of an open mic thing. But yeah, so that's kind of a funny way to meet, actually, because yeah. we, we met each other's words Before first. we really met, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then and I was always interested in having you around... To, to talk and then obviously it got announced you had a, a book coming so mm. I thought fantastic we'll, we'll actually wait and mm. um, I'll check out the book and we'll do the plug for the book I was I was wondering and I, you, you don't have to do this but I wanted to put you on the spot I thought usually I introduce people in an intro that yes. I record afterwards uh, and obviously play before but I was thinking um do you, would you like to read out the afterword of your book? Absolutely. I think that's a really cool way for you because I thought as soon as it's I finished reading it, the, it yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as I finished reading it for the first time, I was like, when you come round, I think the coolest way you could introduce yourself to anyone listening is to read the thing at the end of your book. Yeah. Do you know honestly? I think I spent longer on this afterward than I did on any one of the poems. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. this, it was so hard to write. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll just get into yeah, it. Yeah. Just read oh. it. Yeah. Sometimes my life feels like one big contradiction. 
I was raised by Christian celebrities, but I write about sex work and queerness. I've been quoted in academic papers, but I left high school after fifth form. I don't really like most poetry, but here I am writing a book of it. I think most people feel disconnected in some ways, and I'm often caught between two worlds. As an immigrant, New Zealand is my home, but I'm not sure I'll ever completely fit in, and I don't belong in America either. I've never felt gay enough to be part of LGBTQ circles or straight enough for everyone else. I'm not Jewish enough for synagogue and I gave up feeling comfortable in churches years ago. I love my family very much. It's full of talented, caring, passionate people, but my life has ended up very different from most of them. Community can be something you create, though. Sisterhoods of sex workers, covens of feminist book lovers, two-in-the-morning performers drunk on applause. It's with these people that I know, although the world is sometimes awful and the worst does happen, people are mostly good. I wrote this book to try and keep sane through some terrible and wonderful years. I hope anyone who feels like they don't belong might read it and know there is something out there that will keep you sane too. There we go. So, there we go. so that sets us up for um, anything we might want to talk about it. Yeah. And, uh, and you say that took more thought and time than, almo more. than almost Much anything more. else. Did you... I wasn't even going to write one. Right. And then... Um, so what... Yeah, why? Dominic, the, one yeah. of the publishers, pointed yeah. out that um, the, there wasn't really anything in there except the poems. Mm, mm, mm. Um, and that, you know, some kind of introduction to me or... or yeah, talking context. about why I had written the poems yeah. would be good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I knew that that was a good idea, but mm. I just I despise unless it's poetry. I yeah. just despise writing about myself. Right. Yeah, yeah. My bios are always terrible, or I get someone else to write them. Yeah. Or, um, it's I think as an artist, it's the worst. I think a lot of writers feel that way. <laughs> it's yeah. the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've even the thing is I love writing them for other people. Mm, I've even mm. thought about charging as a mm. service, you know, mm. fifty bucks and I'll write. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's just awful. <laughs> so did you did you think about? I mean, so because here's what I've just done. I've got you to do that before anyone that's listening to this is. Heard, I mean, unless they already know about you mm. and know your work, they, mm. they're going to have heard that before they hear anything from the book. Yeah. Um, did you think about placing it at the front as an intro? Uh, or was it always an afterword? Purely for aesthetic reasons, it was mm. always an afterword. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and also I I was really set on the idea of um, Daddy Issues Part 1 and Daddy Issues Part 2. As kind the of, bookend, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, opening and closing the book. Mm. So I didn't want too many, apart from the thing about the margins, mm. um, I didn't want any distractions from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well... With that in mind, before we get fully into your story, shh, do you want to read Daddy Issues Part 1? Sure. And then I'll try and remember... What a, what a way the, to introduce readers to my that, poetry. Absolutely. And then at the end, we'll try and remember the finish with you reading Daddy Issues Part 2. Yeah. yeah. I, I always feel like I should mm. talk about these poems mm -hmm. after I've read them, but... Um, feel free to. Cool. Yeah. Daddy Issues Part 1. I was terrible at clarinet. Piano, guitar, drums. He said, if I wanted to be famous, I should find someone really talented and latch onto them. The scar on my chin from when I wanted to be just like him. Stole his razor and tried to shave. I wasn't supposed to, but I saw him spread out on the operating table. Ribs open like cabinet doors. I asked him once if he ever regretted having children. <laughs> he said no, but four was probably too many. I'm the youngest child. I have recurring dreams about giving a lap dance to Mandy Patinkin. 
I'm a morning after public toilet makeup artist. No need to wash, just put another layer on like Edie Sedgwick, only, you know, fatter. He used to say right in front of her <clears throat> that if mum lost 20 pounds, she'd be the most beautiful woman in the world. In year 11, I told everyone I was vegan so I could have an excuse to turn down food. Lived on black coffee and brown rice. I thought my ribs were too big for the rest of my body. He told me if I ever started eating meat again, I should be careful not to lose my figure. I have recurring dreams about sex with Larry David, sex with Mark Maron, sex with Jon Stewart. Late at night, we would watch movies together when everyone else was asleep. Things I was too young to see. It's the only time he ever gave me advice. Heavenly creatures, don't kill your mother. Requiem for a dream, don't do drugs. Flash dance, don't become a stripper. My mother is still alive. No one tells you it's okay to be angry at dead people. Mm. You, I mean, you read really well. Like, I, I loved, uh, you know, when I saw you do the guest performance thing at the Poetry in Motion, I was like, yeah, I get why you've... You're doing what you're doing and why you've got a following. Thank like you. It, you know, it works. You. So, so you can have all the confidence in the world in your voice as a performer and or as a writer, but um, that doesn't mean that it arrives fully formed. That is very true. Yeah. So, <laughs> so did it arrive fully formed for you? Did you, you know? That's an interesting question. Um, I was raised by performers. Yeah. Um, my Both my parents were drama majors. That's how they met at university. Um, and my dad was a, a, a brilliant musician, a prodigy. Um, and my mum was quite an incredible performer as well. Um, a really wonderful actress and an amazing singer. Um, so, and even though they'd kind of given that all up, well, my dad worked in television, hosting mm. a TV show, but um, they'd, they'd given up performance by the time I was born. It was it was always very much a part of my life. And where was this? Where... So I was born in Pittsburgh, yeah. Pennsylvania, uh -huh. um, and I lived there until I was 10, yeah. and then moved to New Zealand. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, in, in one way or another, whether it's, you know, church choir or um, uh, music or drama performance at high school or... Um, but outside of school performances, um, joined a country band when I was 17. <laughs> I've, I've been on stage pretty yeah. much my whole life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and I think that is something that can't really be, uh, bought or, mm -hmm. or even really taught. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> feeling comfortable in front of an audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think on top of that, for, for me, what I try really hard to do with my writing and with my performance is to to always write what I know. Um, I think the, the poetry that I don't really enjoy is when people write about things that they haven't lived. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really, sh it shows up in the writing, but it really shows up in the performance. Yeah. Um, I, as I, a kind of false emotion totally. or, or, or overly dramatic or yeah. overly sincere, that, that kind of stuff, it always shows to me. I can't remember the exact time of this for me but if it makes sense I remember the exact moment where I was on stage reading a poem some 10 12 years ago and I actually got midway through what I was reading and in my head went this is bullshit I don't <laughs> I don't believe this yeah 
and it was a case of I had been reading quite regularly for a few years and yeah. I had got okay at it like I got very comfortable with doing it and I I believed in doing it I didn't turn up at open mics or anything but I had done you know some shows and, and supported some people and done some things with it and then I just had this moment I was in a cafe in Upper Hutt and I was opening for Sam Hunt wow. and it was on National Poetry Day or whatever. God, and, what a time to realise. Well, yeah, I had, I had, I had done, it, I had done that a couple of times. Yeah, you know, three or four times with him over the years, and Sam would always pop out and watch one or two poems, as he, I think he does with anyone, and then he disappears because yeah. otherwise people just bug him. Yeah. So he has his moment, and he had been really kind about one thing that I'd written, and he'd told me that two or three times that I'd read it with him, and mm. so that was cool. So I, I knew he liked this one poem that I did and that was fine it wasn't that one but it was something else and I just went shit I fucking don't believe this yeah. and so I didn't read a poem for yeah 10 12 15 years wow. just like, and I stopped writing them for a long time wow. but it was because I I realized I was forcing it yeah. I was creating stuff that wasn't re you know I don't know what I was trying to do with it but yeah. I just no longer believed it yeah. yeah so that's sort of a version of exactly what you're talking about yeah like, how now I get you back to writing them though? Well, yeah, I get, you know, I'm, yeah, now I think I can do it again. Yeah. You know, and I think I've, I'm writing about things I'm interested in. Yeah. And, and, and myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. Plenty of awful poetry in the world. I wouldn't worry about adding one or two more. Oh, no. If, I've, even if it, I'm not saying yours is bad. Well, but no, I've added way more than, <laughs> than one or two to the, but you're right, you're right, you're right. And now this is one of your favourite things, right, bad poetry. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which makes any compliment from you about my poetry no. tricky now. <laughs> no, I genuinely, I genuinely don't give compliments yeah, yeah. unless I mean them. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I, this is terrible. It makes me sound like a terrible person, but I will gleefully yeah. watch a poet bomb. Yeah. I have the same thing with comedy. I yeah, love. Same. Oh, same. I and the, the, the worse people they are, the more I'll love it, yeah. you know? Um. What about, does it extend over to other performance? Do you think with a musical performance and stuff, less Ooh, so no, probably, No, because eh? I've been a really bad musician. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so that, that pain is mm. there. <laughs> mm. um, I think the yeah, thing that maybe... I think as well, something about poetry and comedy yeah, attracts that... a particular kind of mm. really arrogant... Yes. People who feel like they deserve to take up space. My voice on stage. is important, and yes. you've come to hear me. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I. Uh, here's the thing. Poetry is a beautifully open mm. form of art, um, and I think everyone should write it um, because it can be it can be really healing. Um, for me, I I started writing because I knew that I'm the kind of person who. If I don't if I don't create something every day, I will just go absolutely insane. And I know that about myself. I'll fall apart. I won't get out of bed for months. Um, I'll you know I'll wreck my life and everyone around me. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and I started writing poems purely because they're short. They're easy. You know, it's mm, easy mm. to finish one in a day. Yeah. Um, and I I think that f I think. A lot of people are like that, um, that you, you need to do something creative every day or you start to kind of wander off, mm, run into space. Mm. Um, so I, I would encourage everyone in the world to, mm. to try writing poetry. And self-imposed deadlines are great. Yes, you know, having, they are. They like are. you say, and having I a little project and a poem fits so perfectly into yeah. it. Any, anyone with an idea of writing a novel, that, that's a big commitment. It is. It <laughs> is. Know, yeah. yeah, and I, yeah. I think writing in particular, people yeah. get into their head that they, you know, they, they can't be caged in. They have to, yeah. 
you know, they can only write when inspiration takes yeah. them. And I, I think that's absolutely wrong. I think force yourself to write mm, and, and, you, and you will get better. It's the, like learning an instrument, you know. The poem has a lot of great pathways and applications. It can be collected together eventually into a book. Yes. It can be put to music and turned yeah. into a song. Yeah. It can be shared with everyone on the yeah. stage or kept yeah, you can put it I've under lock and key. I've got poems that I've turned into short yeah. stories because yeah. they were rubbish as poems. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but that's, they, they can be a great starting yes. point. Yes, yeah. To yeah. Um. So I, I, when I say that I take joy in bad poetry, mm. I don't mean to discourage anyone from mm. writing. Mm. Um. Well, it's arguably all subjective anyway. Exactly. So and what the, do I know? The bad, know? the bad poets. <laughs> might be very good or might find enough people in their well, life I mean, that think they're very good. You know, yeah. there's there's poets on Instagram who mm -hmm. I think are awful with millions of followers, mm -hmm. you know, who are making a living from it. Mm -hmm. um, so really, who am I to, <laughs> I don't really, to criticise anyone? I don't really understand hugely the sort of Instagram poetry, I don't call it a fad, movement. It's a funny thing. I'm very grateful to it yeah. because it, it's been part of a big resurgence of poetry. It, it's, it's sort of part of where you come from, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm very open about saying, you know, if social media didn't exist, I wouldn't I wouldn't have anything as a writer. Um, but that's where you found not just an audience but yourself yeah. as a writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think... Well, I would probably say that I found myself when stepping away from social media. Yeah, yeah. But um, but certainly I I found a community of people who who mm. liked what I had to say, mm -hmm. and that's an incredibly valuable thing. Mm. Um, so, well, so when do you discover poetry? If you aren't a a natural poet, or you know, you say there's a lot of poetry you don't like and don't follow, and you're yeah. Not, when, when does it come into your life? Um, and is it a case if it comes into your life, you reject it, and then it comes back into your life? <laughs> or my my mum is a poet, mm -hmm. and my grandmother was as well. Um, so when I was younger, and I mean sort of ten, eleven, twelve through high school, I wrote a lot of poetry, mm -hmm. and it, it was truly bad, mm -hmm. um, which I love now looking back on it and thinking, God. Mm. <laughs> um, and then I s I'm trying to remember why I gave it up. Probably very similar to you, where I just realized that I wasn't very good mm. and, and felt very discouraged. Mm. Um, and I had joined a band and had, you know, married a musician and that was all very exciting. And um, I think as a, as a formerly Christian woman, the idea of supporting my husband's art was, was much more appealing than putting any energy into my own. Um, so yeah, probably that all came into it. Um, and then, how did I rediscover it? I was very depressed, um, and I was trying to find a way to, to, to talk about that. And every time I tried to describe directly how I felt, it was too much. You know, too sincere, mm. too didactic, mm. too um, too much emotion. Too overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I'm someone who's very uncomfortable with emotion <laughs> from myself or anyone else. <laughs> um, and I found that if I could step back into metaphor, that made it a little bit more comfortable to look at you're and to think about. You're creating 
a buffer zone. Yes. A little yeah, bit of, some distance. A little bit of distance. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wrote those poems are terrible. Um, I would never I would never let them see the light of day and I didn't I didn't write them intending to perform or, or show them to anyone. It was just a way to to get it out, I guess. Mm. Um, it's another of the attributes I think that poetry has is that it's almost assumed that it's autobiographical. Yes. And yet you can really fuck with that. You can yeah, really play with absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you know, half tell half truths. Yeah. You can, and you I, can stretch things. You yeah. Can, yeah. I think what I've always loved about poetry and, and um, sci-fi and fan, I'm a huge nerd, sci-fi and fantasy is that ability to, to tackle some really confronting things. Mm. Um, things that people are very uncomfortable talking about. Politics, religion, mm. um, emotions, if you're me. Um, <laughs> uh, by kind of removing them slightly yeah. from, from what makes them confronting. Yeah, um, Yeah, I think that's a, a tremendously valuable aspect of, of poetry. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to America and your parents. Yes. You, cause I feel like we should really <laughs> properly start there in terms of your timeline. Yeah. So they recorded several albums. Nine. Nine, Nine albums, yeah, in the 70s of gospel music. Gospel music. Yeah. And they, were they like a travelling road show kind of thing? Or? They, um, church groups yeah. and, and Christian communities, I guess, would fly them all over the States mm, and mm. sometimes to different parts of the world as well. Um, to perform, and they would play at um, churches, at festivals. Mm. Um, yeah, and they they had quite a following. Um, very occasionally, even now, I'll come across someone who knew the music. Wow! Because um, they used to, they had one hit single called Forty Brave Soldiers," um, that even in New Zealand used to be played on Radio Rima. Right, right. Is that still yes. a thing? I don't know if it's still a thing, but, but I remember. You remember it? it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so it's it's pretty rare these days, but right. very occasionally you'll say, Hadassah Green, are you Tom and Candy Green's daughter? Oh my God. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I right. grew up with their music. And, wow. Yeah. And when you say it's rare, is it the sort of thing that it's on YouTube and it's got in brackets rare next to the <laughs> thing, which I always laugh at because yeah. you just put it on YouTube, that doesn't mean it's rare anymore. Um, I think a few people have put their yeah, songs on YouTube. Right. Um, I, I mean more, it's rare for me to come across someone sure. who knows yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, and then they gave it up when my sister got to be about two years old. Um, she's the oldest in the family, and I think it just got hard doing that with a toddler. Yeah. Um, and then a few years later, when um, just before I was born, my dad got a, a job at a Christian television station in Pittsburgh, and he started, <laughs> this always makes me laugh, um, a, a Christian alternative to MTV called Light Music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um... And the, the, the pitch was that it was, you know, if someone was drunk or high and flipping through the stations and um, came across a, a kind of cool rock Christian music mm. video, they might stop and listen and then they might eventually come to, to Jesus. Mm. But privately, my dad told me, actually, he saw MTV, which at the time was unprecedented, and thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I just want to, I want to do some version of it mm. um, and Christian television was a way that he could do that um, but it, it got to be 
pretty big. Yeah, a bit. Um, in the American Christian television yeah. <laughs> scene. Um, yeah. So uh, it was a it was a weird thing. Um, looking back, there's lots of stuff that I thought was normal at the time. Um, you know, our number had to be unlisted because we would get hate mail and um, even little things. You know, I was I was uh, with a group of friends and we were talking about like funny stuff your parents did um and I was like you know and when you're heading off to school and your mum puts the full armor of God on you every morning before you leave and I thought it was a universal experience yeah <laughs> <laughs> and the room kind of stopped and I was like you know helmet of truth breastplate of righteousness <laughs> um yeah but it but looking back it was pretty weird <laughs> yeah yeah and and I mean so he goes to TV and, mm -hmm. and that's successful, but mm -hmm. I was going to ask, like just reading not just the Daddy Issues poem, but some of the other ones in mm. the book, I was I was wondering if some of his, the lines that you attribute to him and some of his mindset and maybe even mood swings yeah. came about from a resentment of giving up performing, do you think? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think... I'm very aware that my mum might listen to this podcast. <laughs> Love you, mum. I think that if my dad had not converted to Christianity, there's a good chance that he would have been quite famous. Um, he was tremendously talented. Mm -hmm. In the 60s and early 70s, he ran lights at the Troubadour. So he, you know, he did lights for people like Bob Dylan and mm. all kinds of musicians. Um he, you know, he's got stories about, like, Glenn Fry sleeping on his couch and um, all of that kind of stuff. Wow, he, yeah. he was in studio bands with some incredible musicians. Yeah. Um, and even watching videos of his um, his later stuff on TV, you know, because they had the, the light music band and he would perform with them. Um, he was just an exceptional talent. Um, and I wonder if there was some resentment Mm. about that because that, I think that the family put it on hold like that becoming a family man yes put it on hold yes because it's quite a was, common thing that like. yeah I think he was part of a, a generation which mm. did a lot of drugs in the 60s had a lot of um, experiences and then turned to Christianity and, and family and a stable job as a way to kind of absolve that, that guilt or or deal with some of those feelings of being out of control. Mm. Um, and I, that must have been hard, you know, to, to, to go from living this incredible life with all this potential um, to four kids, which in his defense is a lot of kids. Yes, sounds like there's one too many, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The TV thing happens. That goes. You say that goes well. Yeah. What What happens between then and coming to New Zealand, and why? Um. Uh. Not surprisingly, um, Christian television is um, full of a lot of corruption and and unsavory people. Um. And I think he got pretty sick of that. Um. And. Oh, I'm sure my parents didn't appreciate American politics at the time. Um, economically, I guess they were always pretty liberal. Um, 
socially not at all. Um, personally, I'm not sure how those things <laughs> yeah. can be opposed to each other. But uh, anyway, that's <laughs> a different conversation. Mm. Um, uh, so my dad quit. Um, he put his resume online. Um, and at the time, a Christian television station in Auckland contacted him and said, would, would you like to move to New Zealand? We'll sponsor your visa. Um, and will you help us start this television station? Which they said yes. Um, I think, you know, clean air and, and public health care and good schools sounded like a dream. Mm. Um, and, but that only lasted about three months. Um, and then... Uh, the television station off in Auckland, which I'm having trouble remembering the name of, um, bought CTV down in Christchurch, and they sent him down to Christchurch, so we moved down there, uh, and then something happened, I'm not sure what, but CTV completely separated from, mm -hmm. it was FTN up in Auckland, mm. um, and somehow he found himself, uh, working at a non-Christian television station in Christchurch. Right. yeah. Um, yeah. What was it like for you? You were about 10. Yeah. What sort of shift was that? I was very unhappy about it at yeah. the time. <laughs> um, this must have felt like coming to some um, backwater it was of the world then. It was funny, yeah. yeah. And a funny thing for a 10-year-old, I, I was a weird little kid. Um, you know, I had friends in the States, but I was, I was never popular. Um, we never had a lot of money, and we... We went to quite a, a rich school district, um, and I was just kind of weird and awkward for the most part. Um, and then I came to New Zealand, and, and you know, for 10-year-old kids, America's like, wow. You know, so all of a sudden mm. there were these kids like, oh my god, amazing. You know, do you have lockers like they do in American TV, and, and mm. all of these questions. Um, and that, that was a bit of a shift, and I don't think I really knew how to how to handle that. Um, yeah, but it was certainly, um, things were very different. Um, yeah. Hmm. So what, when does it, when does it become less different? <laughs> when does it, you know, <laughs> when it, has it? <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. I remember when I was 18, um, I went back to the States and I lived with my sister for about a year. And until then, I'd always thought of myself as American. Mm. Um, you know, and, and I liked New Zealand. I liked living yeah. there. Um, but in my head, there was always at some point, I'll move back to the States. Yeah, yeah, this I'm, is... Um, I'm really American. Yeah, yeah. And then I got there and suddenly realized, oh my God, no, I'm not. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Describe that a bit more. Uh, I think it was mostly a sense of humor thing. Um... You know, New Zealand has this kind of very particular dry mm. sense of humour. Um, and I told a joke and it just bombed. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and I don't know. It's I, quite crucial, those particular years you were here, I guess, yes. to the, you know, from the adolescence, from yeah. 10 to 18. Yeah. That's, your, that's your adult development. It is, or the yeah. significant start of it. Yeah. And um, that's very formative for... 
you know, the the location that you spend those years in. Is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think politically as well. Yeah. I um, you know, I'm 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 pretty left. Um, yeah. I would actually say I'm more left now than I was at 18. Um, but I certainly in New Zealand, I certainly wasn't the most radical of of my friends. Um, and over there, people just thought I was a communist. You know. <laughs> I would say things that I felt were common knowledge and, and people would just look at me like I was absolutely insane. Mm. Um, and that was quite a shock. You know, I was, you know, certainly I, I was used to people disagreeing with me, but never this kind of, where are you even coming from with that? Mm, mm. You know, the idea of, of public health care or, or any of the things that we kind of take for granted in New Zealand yeah, yeah. Um, were just seen as... as Un- unimaginable over there um yeah and that you know the the war in iraq was still going on and and um people are quite open about criticizing it here in new zealand um mm. and it was a very tense time over in america i remember i was at uh philadelphia train station with my sister um which is quite large there's lots of people around and i was saying Something along the lines of it's funny how America, you know, is, is talking about spreading democracy when mm. when you think about their voting system, they're not really a real democracy compared to a lot of other countries. And mm. my sister said, "Lower your voice. You can't. Wow. You know, yeah, you can't yeah. talk like that yeah, yeah. in in public places." <laughs> and it was like, "What do you mean?" Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So those sorts of things were were a real kind of culture shock. Mm. Mm. So you come back here at nineteen. Yes. And uh, think this is home now? Yeah. Definitively or no? Oh. Um, at the time, I was with... I was in, I was in the, the country band. Um, I was with my then-boyfriend, who later became my husband and then ex-husband. <laughs> and we came back because his visa ran out. Um... Well, he came back. We could only afford one plane ticket, so he flew back, and then I stayed in the States and worked and, and saved up enough money to fly back as well. Um, and he asked me to marry him, and I guess I was just thinking about building a life, you know? Um, and, you know, we ended up buying a house and... And was he thinking about a, a bigger, longer visa? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, he's a one, you know, we're very good friends now. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah. He's a great person. Um, but I think that was where we kind of started to split off, where I was thinking, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll build a life, we'll have some kids, we'll, um, you know, we'll settle down in New Zealand. And he was thinking, how can we get back to the States? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're still in Christchurch. Mm-hmm. And what's going on? What is going on there? Uh... Well, um, I was working with kids with special needs um, at a high school and also a respite centre. Uh, I started going to university when I turned 20. Um, that was kind of my life. It was politically kind of an awakening. I was studying gender studies and um, when Adam, well, Adam and I split up when I was 21. Um, and after that, I, I still owned the house and a couple of, a couple of women moved in who were really pretty, pretty staunch radical feminists and, 
um, that was quite a fun time, I mm. guess. Mm. Um, I was working in an organic store and um, had this kind of very wholesome life where I um, didn't shave and grew all my own vegetables and would hand grind wheat to, to bake bread and... Um, the good life. The good life. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it was this sort of like radical feminist hippie. Mm. Um, and that carried on until the earthquakes mostly. Um, yeah, I... Uh, Is that why you left? Yes. Yeah, I had been seeing someone long distance who lived in Wellington. Um, and we'd kind of started to have the conversation about like, if this gets more serious, who will move where? Yeah. Um, and then... You were assisted in that Yes, decision. that made the decision yeah. for us. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you were th went through both sets of earthquakes? Yes. Yeah, the first one um, was upsetting, but, you know, nothing yeah. more than um, yeah. some broken broken bottles on the floor. Um, and My then, wife's uncle was the guy that was most injured in that. He had wow. the chimney collapse on him. Wow. And uh, he was operated from head to toe. Wow. And told, um, you know, you may have trouble walking yeah. again and rah, rah, rah. And what do you like doing when he was recovering? He said, playing golf. And, and they said, well, you probably won't do that again. And yeah. he said, you don't know me very well. And uh, his immediate goal was to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle yeah. however many months afterwards, which he did. Yeah. And then he was out playing golf. And, yeah, he's made a full recovery. But oh, so, so for us personally, that was obviously a really big story. A really big deal, yeah. Yeah, that's right, related to that. But then, yes, then the next earthquake comes and it's... yeah. The, that first October one just seems like nothing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. Even in the even in the February one, mm. I have those experiences where because mm. the east side of Christchurch and and Littleton where I was living was so much more intensely affected than um, you know places like Rickerton and, and mm. Burnside. Um, I'll you know obviously people are are, are aware of the tragedy. Mm. Um, but there's still people with such a different experience of it, you know. Yeah. I was I was in Littleton, which is where the the shakes were centered, um, right on the main street. So my experience was was really pretty awful. Um, we also the CTV building. Um, he obviously wasn't in there. He died when I was 16. But CTV is where my dad worked yes, yeah, when yeah. we moved to Christchurch. Yeah. Um, my brother also worked there. As soon as you mentioned CTV, I was yeah, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. That might come up um, again. Yeah, so yeah. we we had a lot of family friends mm. who were killed. Um, mm. So it was it was pretty pretty devastating. Um, and I remember I I wrote this little short story, um, which again will never see the light of day. It's not very good at all. But <laughs> you might be able to reverse that one, turn it into a poem. Yes, true, <laughs> true. That can happen. Um, it's it's kind of about the earthquakes, but it, it's. Uh, using there's a sort of rift from another world and it's dragons coming through and mm. um it was sort of an attempt i guess to to make it easier to write about by kind of making it a little bit lighthearted. Mm. um and the main character is in the middle of a dragon attack and she completely freezes up um you know and can't move and and this little boy has to like run across the street and grab her out of traffic and i read it to a friend who is, was in Christchurch for the earthquakes, but mm. was on the side that wasn't very deeply affected. And she was like, God, why did you make the main character a coward? And, <laughs> I, 
and I was really like shocked because that's what yeah. I did. Yeah. You know, I completely froze. I didn't know yeah. what to do because there were buildings falling down yeah. in front of me. You mm. know, um, I remember walking down the street afterwards and seeing a car in the middle of the road, both doors open, and a massive boulder just in the windscreen. And it was empty, but you could you could instantly see someone driving and then this boulder smashing into them and then opening the door and bolting out and it was just horrifying mm. everyone froze no one mm. knew what to do um but that disparity of experience where you know because she was saying oh you know a couple of books fell off the bookshelf for me and it wasn't that big a deal but the idea that that someone could go through exactly the same event mm. and then think that to freeze made you a coward yeah yeah it, it's it's really um kind of shocking i guess mm, yeah mm. and there's yeah i mean even outside of obviously what just happened in christchurch which is a as as a whole other thing yeah. um there's been it seems this sort of disparity of uh attitudes around it ever since like yeah. you know some people moved out of christchurch bought a house somewhere else sold it moved back yeah and now live in a much bigger better house and think yeah. and think that was a great move yeah you know i actually capitalized on that really well yeah <laughs> which seems like like hey good for you but that seems yeah. like about the worst thing you could say I know. <laughs> about a place where there are people that it's taken years for them to get clean water their house even? in order yeah, yeah. exactly uh, let alone their actual life yeah. like you know the the shell shock yeah. around that is yeah. something that's and now a, a broken city has been further yeah, and it, and you're you're seeing a lot of the same things. It feels like mm. I remember getting off the plane in Wellington just felt so bizarre because it was this sort of functioning city. You know, mm. people were going mm. about their business as though nothing. Well, how happened. long were you in Christchurch for? It was literally uh, the day after the February earthquake. Oh uh, right, you're just like fuck it. I'm done. Yeah, I yeah. um the the person I was seeing said I'm buying you a plane ticket. Yeah. Um. And so I it just, wasn't a permanent move to begin with? No, it was, it was like, always just, just going to be get out of Dodge. And, yeah. Because yeah. um, I, you know, my house had been wrecked. Yeah. I didn't have a job because the building I was in had been wrecked. Mm. Um, and do you remember being here in Wellington and about four or five days later there was a fucking pretty good shake-up earthquake in Wellington? I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but, it, but that... I was walking into some shops about three days after the earthquake and someone had the radio on and they were talking about the earthquake and the woman in the shop said, God, I'm so sick of hearing about this. I wish they'd just shut up. God. <laughs> she yeah. obviously didn't know that I was from Christchurch. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but even now, you're with this recent mm. terrorism, you, you're seeing that sort of attitude. Of, yeah. Not, I haven't heard anyone say, I wish you'd shut up about no. it, but, but hearing people say... Oh, I wish they wouldn't politicize it, or yeah, yeah. or I wish they wouldn't bring race into this, or mm. those sorts of sentiments of, of wanting to, I guess, turn away from from confronting anything ugly. Mm. Um, and it, I understand that because it's a it's a country that's grieving and and people react in different ways. Yeah. But it it feels it feels very callous. Um, considering the nature of the attacks and that you know here is someone who wrote a, a 74 page manifesto entirely yeah. about race yeah um so it it feels pretty callous to try and say we shouldn't make this about race or politics yeah we can't politicize yeah. this it's it's been <laughs> yeah politicized. yeah it's... and and considering 
you know, I know members of the Muslim community who are saying we've been we've been saying for years that that white supremacy and and anti-Muslim sentiments have been ramping up, and we mm. need help and we need protection. And, um, they've been, and we've failed them. And they've been ignored. Yeah. Um, so to to try and say or give it some time before you bring this stuff up. Yeah. Uh, to me, just feels like very privileged and very ignorant. Yeah. I don't know what the your original question was. I just got off. No, no, we were, talk- started going. We were talking about Christchurch <laughs> and the earthquake, and I mean now, mm. and 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 again, like obviously it's it's so early after the, this awful slaughter that yeah that we can talk about it in this way, but it, it's so unfair for Christchurch too that now it's yeah. a city defined by two Just horrific tragedy. Yeah. two horrific separate tragedies yeah. are what define modern Christchurch. Yeah. Um, I was. I, I remember that there was an earthquake just a few days after up here because we opened our house to some people from Christchurch mm. and they came and stayed and I think the, yeah, the sec- second or third day they were here there was that earthquake and yeah. they were so frightened. Yeah. And a couple of days later they moved back to Christchurch. Yeah. You know, they really didn't know. And I, I just always remember thinking how awful that was yeah. to be so on edge, mm. you know, Obviously, it was so yeah. visceral and, and and raw and frightening, but the move was clearly, oh, well, we'll have to just go back to, to somewhere everywhere. where... That's right, so we might as well go back to where we know more people. Yeah, it's really... Even even now, a shake will give me a fright. Mm, I bet. Um, and even there's a particular moment before a really bad earthquake hits that sounds a lot like thunder. Yeah, So yeah. even now during storms... A, a good roll of thunder will get my heart going. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. most people, uh, that is the case. Yeah. And that's the many of us that have been lucky to not be in a, yeah. you know, anything like the Christchurch one. But I used to always use the word awesome about about earthquakes mm. and, and, and a very true definition yes. of the word. Yes, or There's something about because it is such a, we are so nowhere near being in control of that. Yeah. That is something that none of us can predict. A, Beyond that little rumble that yeah. some people catch, yeah. and then it's too late. There's no way that you can spring into any sort of action yeah. there. Um, but, yeah, ever since Christchurch, it's, it's it's obviously not been a good word to say. <laughs> you know, it's no, not, but, I, but I understand yeah. the intention behind yeah. it. That yeah. feel, I mean, to humans are such grounded beings, mm. you know, mm. and, and such nesters, and, um, you know, we, we really live in our spaces mm-hmm. and to have those spaces shift out from underneath us is such a yeah. such an alien feeling yeah um, that I you know I understand the the intention behind a word like awesome where it's just mm-hmm. like this there's no there's no possible way to describe it yeah um, yeah. yeah okay so you're in Wellington yes ever since yes. So you've been here since then. So you are seeing someone, they give you a ticket, say, come and sort your shit out, or, yeah. you know, come and feel like you can get your shit under control yeah. and just see what happens, and yeah. you decide to stay here. Yes. Yeah. It was, it took a while. Mm. You know, I went back and forth a yeah. little bit. And, yeah. Um, at, at some point I was able to get back into what used to be my house and get some stuff out. And um so I came I went back down to Christchurch for a couple of months and sorted through my stuff and um you know went and organized what used to be my job and um tried to decide where I wanted to live but um, did you lose a lot of stuff 
Did you lose a lot of important stuff? Uh, my passport was probably the 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 most important loss. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's a replaceable loss, but yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was actually able to get out a lot of really sentimental stuff. Right. Um, uh, family photo albums and, and those sorts of that's things. That's what I was thinking. I mean, you've, yeah. your, you've, your dad died when you were young. Yeah. Uh, he had a very interesting set of experiences yes. that we've heard about. Yeah. So I would imagine you would have had some, yeah. Yeah, some, some stuff around that, yes. some things that you wanted to yeah. have. Um, so yeah. I, I was able to, to get out a lot mm. of that stuff. I have his last um, uh, book of musical notation paper. Right. There's yeah. a word for it that I'm blanking on. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, the stuff you yeah. can post music on. <laughs> <laughs> like behind you there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and his old... Um, he had a really beautiful wooden bass recorder that he that he left to me, and I was able to get that out. And, right. Um, old family photo books and those yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, uh, I was in Christchurch with no clothes and... You know, only what I could borrow from people and mm. um, those sorts of things, which, I mean, at, at a certain point you realise it's not really a, all that important. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The stuff's replaceable. Yeah. Yeah. So, what, what, when you, when you settle in Christ, uh, Wellington, mm. what, what's going on? What are you doing? I got a job working for a coffee roastery, Coffee Supreme. Um, as a, a trainer and an account manager. So I would teach people to make espresso and then for cafes that used their coffee, I would um, go into the cafes and, and see what I could do to help make their cafes run more efficiently and help them sell more coffee. Mm. Um, yeah, and that... I was there for two or three years. Um, and... Yeah, what I'm trying to think what else was going on. That was about it. I was living with the, the person that I um, had the, been with long distance. The long yeah. distance, yeah. yeah. Um, those are kind of the only... It was a pretty uneventful three years, mm. which I think was, was important. Mm. Um, yeah. So then you have, um, at some point, quite a massive change in your... Mental health. Life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So a massive change in your mental health. Yes. Which then creates the a series of other changes in yeah. your life. Yeah. yeah, I think looking back, um, you know, I, I had this big uprooting where I'm, my whole family moved to a different country. Mm. Um, I was sexually abused between the ages of 11 to 14. My dad passed away when I was 16. I got married, then I got divorced. I went through this big earthquake. And I'd never really dealt with any of it, you know? I, you I'd had been... levels of PTSD. Yes. Yeah. Not just... <laughs> not just one thing. Just, you yeah, had, you were collecting the set. Yes. Without <laughs> wanting to, planning to, or knowing or, it. Or yeah. Even, yeah, or yeah. even being able yeah. to acknowledge that yeah. that's what was going on. Yeah. Um... And I think I had a couple of very stable years in Wellington with a loving partner, and it, it all just kind of hit me. Um, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't run on adrenaline. I couldn't keep busy. Um, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And um, I just absolutely fell apart. Um, I, I had some savings 
um, and I had sold my house, so I had a little bit of money left over from that. Um, so I quit my job and just kind of did nothing for about six months. Um, I went over to the States, I stayed with my sister for a while, I came back, I um, eventually ran out of money um, and got a similar job to Supreme working for a different coffee company and then just... Had some duvet days in that time, watched some yeah, Star I, Trek it actually, sets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It actually got really bad to the point where the, the other coffee company had to say, we would like to invite you to resign. <laughs> right. <laughs> in the nicest way possible. Yeah, you yeah, know, they, yeah. they gave me use of the company car while I wasn't working for them for three wow, weeks. Yeah. You know, they paid me out for a month when I didn't deserve it at all. So they um, knew something was behind yes. you being an erratic employee. Yeah. You yes. weren't just wasting their time and being a jerk. No, right? so and I, I tried to be very open yeah, about yeah, my yeah. mental health, and yeah. they were very concerned for me. Yeah. Um, but it, it did get to the point where they had to say, if, if you don't quit, we're going to have to fire you, yeah. so it's better for you if you quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I... Um, yeah... I, I fell apart um, and didn't re didn't really know what to do. Um, sex work came in as a, a, a money thing, purely. Um, it was a job I could do part-time. It was a job I could cancel on. Nobody cares if you don't show up. I mean, they care, but it's much less of a big deal. Now, there's there's no reason for someone to not, to not do this, but the, there aren't a lot of people that get invited to... Resign from their job working in coffee. Yes. And straight away go, the next thing <laughs> I'm going to pursue, Yeah. I'm going to explore is sex work. Yeah. Um, that's very true. Uh, I understand I'm saying there's no reason why, you know, not why that can't no, be the case, but um, it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's, um, it could be described as irregular. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Um, I think, because someone else asked me that recently, they said, do you think there were any parts of your personality that other than the need for money that, mm. that may have led you to do that. And I, I didn't know what to say, so I just said pass. <laughs> but mm. I've been trying to think of the answer since then. Um, I was always someone who was very comfortable with my body and with nudity. Um, I'd done life modeling. Um, I'd done some nude photography. Uh, and I think a lot of it was just... I knew I knew how unreliable I was as an employee. Um, These hours might work out. Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. I really, as a as a as a person, I've always been an overachiever, um, and a lot of that has to do with trauma. It's very common for for kids who have been through trauma to to mm -hmm. end up becoming kind of people pleasers and mm -hmm. and want to be perfect and everything. Um, so I'd always, I'd, you know, I'd always been reliable. I'd always been um, someone who tried to go above and beyond at work. So the, there was a lot of shame associated with having lost my job in the way that I did. Um, and I think that certainly came into it, um, feeling like the only thing I could do was a, was a job where nothing was expected of me. Mm. Um, but I also, you know, I knew some people who, who were strippers. Yeah. Um, and... They were honest about the job and about the, the difficulties of it, but also very positive about saying, you know, it's really convenient. It's a it's a fast and easy way to make money. Yeah, it can be well paid. And yeah. 
Um, you can structure a lot of time off in your yes. week. Yeah, you you choose your own. Yeah, that you choose the days you work. Um, I'm I'm sure uh, all of my managers from all the strip clubs are going to kick me for saying this, but if you don't want to be there, you just leave. <laughs> um, and if you don't want to come in, you just don't come in. Um, there's some politics around that, but essentially you can you can work it so that that's how it how it works. Mm. Um, and that that was really appealing to me because I didn't feel like I could do anything else. I asked you about um, finding your voice and your form with poetry. Yeah, your book is called um, "How to Take Off Your Clothes." Yes. Um, how. Is there is I mean so you are making a comparison in, in many in many ways and across many levels but was is there a case of the first time you perform as a stripper as a sex worker yeah it's it's a it is a performance so is it comparable in any way to a first time on stage reading Ooh. poetry or performing music or because you, you've question. done all of these things yeah um I would actually say that reading poetry was was much more frightening and much right? more intimate yeah. than taking my clothes off yeah. as a stripper. Yeah. Um, my first time as a stripper was an absolute disaster. <laughs> Did you forget to remove things? No. Right. I so at at the Mermaid Bar at least you have three songs and the basic structure is you you go on I want to say fully clothed but not you know in your outfit. Yes. Yeah. Um, after the first song you take off your outer layer. After the second song. No, wait, let me think about that. After the first song, you're expected to be topless. Right. Um, after the second song, you're expected to be in a G-string. And by the end of the third song, you're expected to be fully nude. Um, I panicked, didn't know what to do. I'm not a dancer. Took off everything in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> and then, because I didn't have any dance moves, yeah. I just kind of stood there, like, <laughs> just sort of gyrating and smiling really awkwardly at customers. <laughs> and I didn't even... I was too scared to get down onto the floor and do any floor work because I didn't know how to get back up. So I just, cause I was in these massive heels yeah. and just looking like a deer in the headlights. So I just kind of stood there gripping the pole cause I couldn't dance. Um, so what this puts across is I'm eager and I guess I'll learn on the job. Yeah. I'm, I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Unskilled. I, I know the gist of what I'm supposed to do <laughs> and I'm going to get better at it. And then on top of that, um, about 10 minutes before I'd started, the manager had took me through the kind of etiquette around accept accepting tips. Um, and what she actually said was, if someone is sitting around the stage, they're there to watch the stage show. So if you're on the floor, don't kind of approach them mm -hmm. and, and, ha and haggle them about anything. Go for the people who are sitting further away from the stage. But the music was very loud and I was very nervous, so I didn't quite hear it. So then when I got on stage, I didn't know the rules and I didn't want to upset anyone. So anytime someone tried to offer me a tip, I would just say, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> Which is the worst thing you can do as yeah, a stripper, yeah, to yeah. turn down money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, my first performance... Poetry-wise, let me think about that. Terrible poems, equally a disaster, but in different ways. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was very, um, you know, poetry communities are so welcome, apart from mm. me giggling in the back at the bad people. But, um, <laughs> but everyone else is, is, is so lovely and so yeah. welcoming. And, um, but also it, it felt 
after years of performing in in choirs and um, in bands where other people were write, were writing the music and on stage as a as a an actor, it was so intimate to be performing my own stuff. I'd never done it before, um, and that was was really overwhelming, really frightening, um, in a way that just showing off body mm. parts didn't really feel like at all. Um, yeah. I guess it's, uh, you know, it, you know, you prefaced that by saying you've already had some experiences, you've felt body confident, yes. you've done yeah. live nude modelling and yes. so forth, that's going to be different from someone else's experience that, Absolutely. that decides yeah. to give it a go and is way more nervous. But, yeah. also, but also what you're kind of talking about there is that bearing the physical parts of your body yeah. is very different to... Yeah. Bearing the yeah. internal parts of yes. your soul. And cer certainly I think that is, as you said, varies person to person, mm. you know. Um, I was talking to a, um, a friend who's a sex worker recently and we were talking about, um, you know, f for her, she feels absolutely no issue with accepting money for sex. Mm. Um, none at all. Sex for her isn't a... Per or it can be, you know, with mm -mm. someone she loves. It can be a personal thing. Or it doesn't have to be. Or it's a job. Um, and how difficult it is to get across to people that... Um, you know, because often when you're a stripper, people will ask, oh, what's your price for having sex for money? And trying to explain, like, if you're not comfortable having sex for money, there's no amount of money that's going to change that. Mm. You know? And if you are... It's it's not it's not a matter of like oh I'd do it for five hundred it's it's just y you are comfortable with it you know and then you price yourself with obviously getting the most money you can for where you sit in the market um, which I'm sure to someone who is not comfortable accept accepting money for sex sounds very clinical but um, it's, it's not an issue for some people mm -hmm. you know taking mm -hmm. my clothes off giving lap dances um, making emotional connections with customers. Um, n none of those things were uncomfortable for me because I was I was fine doing them in in the context of something that benefited me financially. Mm. Um, but obviously, for other people, that's not going to be the case, and that's fine. They just shouldn't become sex workers. And you talked about <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's the case of yeah, wrong person for the mm. job. Um, you talked about poetry communities being very accepting and nurturing. Um, is that the same in, say, a strip club? Like, <laughs> obviously, people think of they've been painted over the years uh, as uh, a playground for desperate people. Yes. Um, there's that's there is a murky side to all of this. Yes. But I imagine you have regulars that are nice people. Yes. And you have co-workers. Yes. That are nice people. Very and, much so. Yeah. Um, I think. I mean, the, the thing about a strip club dressing room is that none of you are getting paid a wage to be there. It's entirely tips and, and commission from lap dances. So there is always going to be a little bit of competitiveness. Mm. Um, there's always going to be... I never saw anything too catty, but uh, there's, a, there's an understanding that you're there to make money and not friends um, in a way that doesn't really come up in other jobs because... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not as outwardly competitive. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you have a wage to rely yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
so there is that aspect to it um and and some women take that really seriously um and will will you know try to sabotage other girls or um yeah get a little bit mean about it um and certainly there are women who are drawn to 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 sex work who um have issues with addiction or or are desperate for money or that sort of thing i'm not going to say it doesn't happen mm. um on the whole a majority of the women i worked with were students or uh women who were traveling who wanted you know a quick easy way to make money mm. while they were in a different country um that that was overwhelmingly the majority mm. um yeah i mean you mentioned that you originally got into it as a short-term yes solution yes so really mm. i was one of the desperate yeah <laughs> So <laughs> when does that change for you, that mindset or um, your approach to it? You know, like, the first time I cracked a grand in a night, I was like, all right. <laughs> I could probably keep doing this. Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And, and then I think my, my natural perfectionism kicked in and it was like, Let's see how far I can take this. Um, At with money being the motivator, do you yes. mean like, can I make a thousand dollars every night yes. for X amount of nights, that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. yeah. Can I cultivate some amazingly rich regulars? Can yeah. I, you know, how much can I make on a Tuesday? How much can I? Yeah, mm. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I I have a friend who uh, wrote a an amazing play called Part Time Prostitute. Um, this is going back about 10 years, about her time um, as a part-time prostitute. Um, and she was saying she used to keep a spreadsheet um, with all kinds of factors of, of, like, outfit and hair changes and lipstick colour and if she changed her style of talking to customers and then would try to track how much money that, that resulted mm. in. I was never that organised, but <laughs> I'm not a spreadsheet kind of girl. But <laughs> But um, it does, it, those sorts of things become fascinating. Mm. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned working at more than one club. That's mm -hmm. not something that happens at the same time. You, no. you just moved around them. Yeah, I, I worked at two yeah. um, and then did a couple of weekends up in Auckland um, just for fun. Um, I worked at Mermaids for about a year and then Calendar Girls for a year. Um, and that was kind of the whole of my time mm. in the sex industry. Mm. Um, yeah, I I want to be careful saying this. I had a couple of issues with management at Mermaids, um, so I shifted to Calendar Girls. Um, I'm not. I'm probably won't ever go back to it. But if I were to, I would probably go back to Mermaids anyway. <laughs> the money's better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, it's not something you think about doing, going back to, but it's in your back pocket. Yeah. That's, that's a, a I, thing I've done, and I could go back and do that yeah, again. God, I miss the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am considerably older and dumpier than I was <laughs> a few years ago. Mm. So it, it would be difficult to go back to. Um, or not, you know, I could, but uh, I probably wouldn't be making as much. Um, yeah. So... Why did you stop? Um, I got a job at Women's Refuge. 
um, doing communications and publications for them and I was pretty over it by then, um, pretty burned out and tired. Um, I didn't want to be doing, you know, nine to five during the week and then seven till, yeah. you know, six in the morning on the weekends. Um, yeah. And it, it, you know, at that point it had become, I'm doing this until I, until something more stable comes along. Um, yeah. And in terms of your mental health and mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of realisation that you had mm-hmm. around hitting a type of rock bottom, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think the work in the sex industry did for that? Um, I think it was largely positive. It gave me some space to to work through a lot of things that I had been avoiding working through. Um, it gave me an incredible network of women um, who were coping with things in in very admirable ways um, and who had had control over their lives in a way that I'd never really felt like I had. Um, and it, it it removed the stress of money, um, mm. which makes everything more difficult, yeah. um, as, as any artist will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So in, in that sense, I'm incredibly grateful. Um, I remember uh, after the, the um, incident with the chiefs where they... Yeah. Yeah. Wrote you wrote. I was going to bring that up. I'm yeah. glad you did. You wrote um, a really good piece about thank that. You. That uh, that was shared massively. Yeah. Yes. So can we talk about that in a couple yes. of ways? Because yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, you carry on. Yeah. And the same thing with I wrote something about Tony Veach. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the Tony Veach piece was kind of the first thing that really got out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in a in a big way, which was kind of a shock. But I was stripping at the time, mm. and. I'd had a couple of particularly bad nights in terms of customers being just drunk and, and, and awful. Yeah. Um, and then this thing with Tony Veach came up and I, and I wrote my piece. Um, and his fans in particular are pretty vicious when he's attacked. So mm-hmm. I was getting, you know, death threats and rape threats. And somebody found my address and sent it to me in a private message and said, watch out, bitch. And all these things were happening. Um... And, you know, because I had been through abuse as a kid, um, I remember getting to this point, and I certainly don't feel like this now, but I remember getting to this point of thinking, God, men are just awful, Mm. you know? I know individual men who are amazing, but collectively, they're just the absolute worst. (laughs) And I think I had a few moments of that where I... I felt like I was only seeing kind of this really extreme side mm. of, of people. Um, but on, on the other hand, the same could be said about the work I did for Women's Refuge, you know, where, because I had a couple of moments like that when I was working there, where, mm. um, you know, you, you go to work and you hear these really horrible stories and, and you're really seeing kind of the depths of what people are capable of and it is just devastating and horrifying 
um, and then you write about something political and you're getting these these messages that are really hateful and these comments of people who are trying to trying to defend the actions of people who are absolutely deplorable and um, it's it's very easy I think in a lot of jobs to feel like god people are just terrible yeah yeah so I think in that sense it wasn't the best for my mental health um sorry going back to your mm, original mm. question and also if you know there's a certain point in depression recovery where it it becomes a habit rather than a necessity and I don't I I mean that very carefully because mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are um I don't, I don't want to blame anyone for, for what they're going through um, because I've been there and, and at a lot of times it was a necessity. Um, but for me at least, I can very easily slip into just staying in bed all day and, and cancelling on things and not socialising and not exercising or eating well and avoiding taking medications. And, um, and a lot of those things are symptoms of depression but I also know for myself that's a bit of a habit. And if you have those habits, um, it's very easy to function as mm. a stripper without having to change any of those things. Um, you know, it's, you can, you can sleep till four in the yeah, afternoon yeah, yeah. and roll out of bed. So it can be a great, go to work it can in be your a pajamas and, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so in that sense, I think towards the end I had to realize, actually, I think something more stable with more accountability would be good for me. Um, but certainly initially it was, it was tremendously helpful and I'm mm. very grateful that mm. I had that as an option, you know, cause not everyone does. Mm. Not everyone is a, a, a white, averagely attractive woman <laughs> yeah. who's still young enough and, you know, able, able to do that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So let's go back to the Tony Beach thing and particularly the chiefs yes. thing, the writing, because so you experienced extreme bullying, mm. death threats, rape mm -hmm. threats, mm -hmm. awful stuff, as you say. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, at least with the Chief's piece, mm -hmm. was you experienced what uh, a lot of people yeah. saying, thank God someone's done this, yeah. sharing it. Yes, um, um, and, and an absolute outpouring of gratitude from women who had been in similar situations. So just explain what, what you actually did. So there was the story around the Chiefs rugby team being yes. disrespectful to strippers yes. at their end of year celebrations yes. and then a wider discussion around sports people and yes. these sorts of things that happen. Yeah. Hiring sex workers, strippers yeah. Yeah. and basically laying on the grog and yeah. men being fuckwits. Yeah. And it being accepted because these are our great sporting heroes. Yeah. That was a sort of yeah. thing that came out. Yes. And you wrote a piece. For Vice. Yeah. Um, about my experiences with rugby players and rugby fans yeah. as customers. Yeah. Um, and then I also wrote a piece for Radio New Zealand. Yeah. A attempting to kind of humanise strippers in yeah. a way that I think a lot of the other pieces hadn't been. Yeah. Um, That's what I remember from it massively. But also you you were able to say, well, this is my lived experience yeah. and it is my experience that among the worst customers I've had and yeah. worst situations I've had have been yeah. after 
yeah. end of season rugby games yeah. have been with the players or yeah. their biggest fans. You, yeah. No one could dispute that yeah. because it had happened directly to you yes. and you were able to categorically yeah. point that out. And because I knew a lot of strippers who yes. said, I will never work a rugby game Yeah. because it's not no amount of money is worth being treated that way. And we know these awful stories, which you would know from Women's Refuge as well, around what happens in the home when a yes. rugby game yes. doesn't go the way the person who's sneakily spent some of the family income on yeah. it, or not yeah. even that, just yeah, it's just, just really disappointed, just blind fandom, yeah, um, towards a rugby game, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think if if you'll allow me a, a gender studies major moment, um, yeah, <laughs> I think particularly in New Zealand, rugby fits into a, a wider problem of masculinity. Not that masculinity itself is a problem, but, but wow. the way we're doing Arguably it. it is. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like those drinking ads. It's, it's, yeah. not the, it's not the masculinity, it's how we're doing masculinity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, <coughs> there you go. There's a, there's a new ad that you can yeah. sell and, uh, and crack a grand on. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think rugby is a, a big part of that, and worldwide sports is a is a really big part of that of of how mm. men identify themselves, you know. Um, and when when that's threatened or when that doesn't go their way, um, I don't think a lot of men know how to deal with that apart from violence. Um, so you see it, as you said, in domestic violence situations. Um, you see it in the reactions to when I write about sporting heroes mm. or, or even, you know, Tony Veach doesn't even play, he just talks yeah, about it. Yeah. And by all accounts, not particularly well. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a mediocre yeah. best yeah. commentator. I'll, I'll admit, I don't know anything about rugby, but... Um, he probably doesn't either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and as soon as that is threatened, people just don't know how to cope with that. I've got to say, I'm amazed at why he was given the support that he was given by people. It's, I don't, it's I, I, As you just started to say, but I don't understand it. He was never one of our... Not that this would excuse it at all, but he was never one of our most loved broadcasters. Yeah. He was only ever competent at his job. Yeah. He was no... Because, I mean, I've had some time watching him on the screen and listening yeah. to him. Um, not an avid follower of sports commentary, but... Over the years, I know enough about sport and about him to know that he's not one of the all-time greats in yeah. his profession, and that even if he was, that wouldn't mean a fucking thing. Yeah. But, I mean, he's a, a guy in the middle of the pack. Yeah. And yet, the his his Facebook page and his followers, uh, up until very recently, yeah. you know, while he was still employed on either TV or radio, yeah. were out for blood at the slightest mention. I think mention. his following on Facebook actually grew after Yeah, that probably. Um, I think, oh, this is a massive question, but, um, I'm just trying to figure out how to condense Mm, it into mm. some sort of answer. Um, I think violence towards women and a, and a kind of undercurrent of disrespect towards women is, is pretty well built into the system that we live in. Um, and there's people that would argue that, um, probably people who have never experienced violence because of their gender. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is very difficult to admit, but, 
you know, domestic violence is kind of the status quo. And I think, actually, when you examine it, it's very difficult to argue that mm-hmm. when, 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 the, when the statistics are what they are in this country. Um, the, the overwhelming amount of women who have experienced it um, and the, the enormous amount of research which shows that attitudes which are sexist and set ideas about gender roles and the way that women should behave is the single biggest indicator of domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, lo- there's a lot of studies that have shown that and that tackling those attitudes is the only thing that's ever shown to be effective um, in, in recovering um, for someone who has those tendencies. Um, I think, unfortunately, um, if you are a feminist or someone who advocates for women's rights or advocates against violence, you are fighting against the status quo, and that makes people uncomfortable. It, it challenges how they were raised, it challenges um, their ideas about how the world works, and people don't really know how to cope with that except to to make a joke of it or or brush it aside or mm. um, or and get violent do you think i I sort of think one of the problems we have in this whole conversation mm. is people's reaction being one of wanting to clear their own name first. Yeah. You know, the whole not all yeah. men thing. Yeah. So what Which you, you just... you see happening now with the shootings and shootings. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, um, you, you said um, words to the effect of just before, you know, I had this period where I really grew to dislike men, and you yeah. should, you said, you know, obviously not every single man. There are some yes. good people, but, yeah. but men as a whole, as a group. And so the response to that from a lot of men is to go... You're not me. Yeah, I'm I've, okay. I've never hurt anyone. I've never I've hurt never anyone, anyone, so never, I'm not yeah. sure why I have to hear all of this. I'm yeah. a good guy, and yeah. that's so fucking pointless. Yeah, as so well counterproductive. As, as exactly, it's yeah. so counterproductive to to do that, yeah. and that we have to own up to to these groups that we do fit into. Yeah. Like I'm a man, yeah. so I I didn't identify as a male. I am a male. Yeah. Um, I recognise the privilege that I have. Yeah. And I think a lot of men in New Zealand around sporting and drinking cultures yeah. um, do a lot of bad in the world. Yeah. And I have to own that yeah. as someone that's part of that group. Yeah. And it, um, I think it's very uncomfortable to admit, and I, I do this as well, um, that if you have privileges and you're not actively fighting against them, you are complicit in mm-hmm. a system that benefits you and and disadvantages other people yeah. often in ways that are violent um and that's a really difficult thing to admit and very uncomfortable and i think even for people who have looked at that fact straight on it's very easy to to look at it and say i acknowledge that and then be like good i've done my work mm. <laughs> that's me sorted i acknowledge my yeah. privilege yeah yeah awesome yeah um you know, and, and even I found myself after I after I heard about the shooting saying, Well, you know, I, I am white and, and Christian, but I'm also Jewish and you know, and I'm a woman and maybe I don't have to feel like it's my job to tackle this you know, because it's so uncomfortable. Mm. Um and so overwhelming to to feel like you're responsible 
not solely, but but as part of a group to to take down a system that would allow this to happen. Um, and I think that as well as part of the 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 very violent reaction or the very aggressive reaction to to I guess any kind of advocacy, you know, mm, people, mm. it it feels so overwhelming, mm. you know, when you hear that um, one in four women will experience domestic abuse in New Zealand, um, one in five women will be sexually assaulted, um, I don't know a single woman who hasn't been harassed or abused in some way in their life. Um, yeah, I feel like there are women that... Um wouldn't even admit to that because yeah. they would they would suggest that they grew up in an era where that was just par for the course or something like that. Yeah. And that's a version of that being complicit. Yes. As yeah. well, isn't it? Um and that feels so big yeah. and untackleable mm. that I think it's it's very uncomfortable to look at yourself as a as you know, in, in any of these things to say as a white person, as a as a middle class person, as a man, as a straight person, as a as a person with any kind of privilege, that each of us has a responsibility to fight against those things. Um because you don't know how, you know? And then mm. that feeling of helplessness makes you angry. And if you're angry it's much easier to lash out at people who are vulnerable than it is to to punch up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very long-winded answer to a question, but... <laughs> mm. No, it's good. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, th this is one of the things, I think, is we are losing rapidly our ability to have long-form, constructive yeah. conversations, to structure arguments, yeah. to accept that not all arguments are binary, yeah. that you actually can fall, you know, and that yeah. you can be aligned to the left of the political spectrum yeah. on some issues yeah. and then far more to the right on others. Yeah. We're losing all of that. Yeah. I wonder if... And to have discussions that can't be, you know, sometimes can't be a soundbite. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah that's right. you actually have to really dig down. Yeah. Um, and especially with stuff like this, I mean, there, there are people who... There are people who spend their whole lives studying mm. the, the politics of race, the, the complexities of gender, um, the way that those things affect very specific aspects of society, you mm. know, and that's a person's entire career. And unfortunately, you, you can't condense that down into, this is how we fix the problem, or... Well, I keep hearing racism is... Nowhere near as bad as it used to be. It's so, it's so, and you know we've we've really improved. Yeah. And no matter whether that's even close to true or not, I've yeah. only ever heard it from white people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's, it's so I'm like, what's your yeah? What's your real basis in this? Well, and you know? where are you going with that? Yeah, where are you going with it? Why? You know? Why does anyone deserve a pat on the back for a problem not fixed? Yeah. You know, not if you if you're living in a house that's falling apart. And the landlord comes and fixes one window and then says, oh, it's a big improvement. Yeah. Yep. You know, yep. it's it's like, OK, cool. That yeah. one window is fixed, but the roof is still leaking. There's black mold everywhere. I can see plants growing through the floor. Mm. Mm. This isn't livable. And it, mm. it's it's those of us who are living in those houses that are saying we can't live like this. Yeah. And it does us absolutely no good to say, 
yeah, but that window is heaps better, eh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then, you know, the rent's going to go up. Yeah. As a result of, <laughs> yeah. as a result of as both a result fixing of that, that window, window. Yeah. And, and, you know, a potential capital yeah. gains tax affecting yeah. that landlord's yeah. and then you've perceived, got people... perceived, you know, worry around. Yeah. And then on top of that, you, you've got people saying, God, why are you always making it about landlords? Yeah. It's so, you know, you're, you're the one, you're the one that's causing the problem. You know, you're turning landlords off renting properties because you... Mm. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's it's such a funny thing. Not funny, but it's such a useless thing to say. It's one of the things about it that's so tricky to really get your head around is that we've made money the ultimate sport. Yeah. And none of us are really, when it comes down to it, free from that. Mm. You know, you said before when I, you know, money was a big yeah. motivator for yeah. you because yeah. it is a big motivator for most people. Anyone yeah. who tells you, I don't care about money, that's that's fine. Yeah. Like that's a fine philosophy to have. And, and I certainly am, I don't do jobs because they pay well. Yeah. I do them because I want to do them. Yeah. Um, but if I was paid extraordinarily well for something I would feel like I earned that money and it was mine to keep and I would be keen to carry on down that path yes and uh so you know it's 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 interesting that money is really driving a lot of this problem stuff but we all identify with it as the great dangling money bag that we want to try and get to yes yeah it's funny some way it's funny with the sex industry because in a lot of ways, there, there isn't a lot of job satisfaction outside of money, you know? And sure. I Certainly, there were, there were aspects of the job that I enjoyed, you know? Mm. I loved getting dressed up and hanging out with my friends and drinking for free. And, um, you know, I, I am, uh, while staunchly feminist, actually quite girly. I enjoy putting on makeup and, and getting dressed up and buying new dresses and heels and things. But I... I wouldn't have done it if it didn't pay well. well and I don't an... know a single stripper who would say, oh, you know, I'd do this for free. And we all have <laughs> and we all have ego, and there's got to be an ego component to absolutely, it too. Like absolutely. Being, being rewarded, yes. being told you're someone's ideal yes. in that moment absolutely. has to do something to you. You, can't, of, you of don't course. just shrug that off and go, cool, good night earning. Yeah. It, it empowers you on some false level, arguably. Yeah. Yes, I think for the first couple of months, that was pretty extraordinary. Um, Mm. Because although I've always been comfortable being naked, I've never really felt attractive. So initially, to to have people pay to see me naked um, was was pretty extraordinary, you know? Um, Because I had gone into it thinking... I have no idea what I'll make, you know? And mm. um, certainly on my first night, <laughs> I, I worked with a woman who is, you know, an honest-to-God Playboy model. Like, they fly her around the world for shoots. She looks like a living Barbie doll. Um, it's just extraordinarily beautiful, and I had to go on stage directly after her. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, as this kind of slightly chubby feminist with... <laughs> With a Woody Guthrie quote tattooed on my stomach. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, 
you know, trying standing there, sort of trembling and gyrating it's not the, naked. It's not the this machine. It feels is. Fe- yeah, fascist. my stomach says this machine feels fascist. <laughs> <laughs> trying to explain to someone why I would have that tattoo on my stomach. Um. <laughs> Well, it could have been this land is your land, I suppose. That would be much more gentle, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for the first couple of months, you know, that's pretty extraordinary. And then I remember kind of having this realisation of like, God, a drunk man will compliment a cheeseburger, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a, a, a drunk, horny person will... If you put a pair of tits in front of them, it doesn't matter who they're attached to. Mm. <laughs> um, so at a certain point, you do get kind of desensitized to it. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, of, of course there's an ego boost to it, you mm. know? Mm. Um, yeah, and, and certainly that came into it. We, we overall, um, are more comfortable with a range of sexuality as a society, I think. Like, yes. You know, overall, again, I'm not saying that problem's fixed. No, but, but that's we, absolutely true. That, that yeah. There have been big shifts towards... Massive shifts, yeah. You know, people being able to, to love who they want to love mm. and like what they want to like doing. Yes. Um, so my question is, how does that translate to things like the strip club? Um, I think... It's interesting in New Zealand particularly because prostitution is legal. So in a lot of ways, strip clubs don't really make sense. You know, um, to, to me at least, as someone who's never been a paying customer, um, I, I would think that the appeal of a strip club would be obvious in countries like America where, where prostitution is illegal. Mm. Um, I'm aware that prostitute in America is a slur, but it's not in New Zealand, so I'm using it. <laughs> um... um uh, so a strip club is kind of this this way for people who want to, to pay for the company of a woman or, mm. or for something close to sex, that they can do that legally. Um, in New Zealand, it's interesting because it makes it much more of a kind of night out experience, I guess. Um, or, or you get people who really just want to talk. Um, you know, I remember having one of my favorite customers who I'm actually still friends with. Um, uh, I remember saying, you know, you spend all this money, um, sometimes just on me and sometimes on a big group of us, um, and for hours and hours and hours, and like, you, you know that you could get sex, <laughs> mm. but much less. And he said, you know, if I wanted to have sex, I'd have sex. That's not the point. You know, I just, I want to have a guaranteed good time um, with with some women that I like looking at. Um, and I'm sure that happens in the States. Um, but I guess the kind of lap dance aspect of it is much, much different, you know? from I, I actually, I know very little about what other women do in lap dances. A few, you know, I've talked to a few strippers about it, but certainly my lap dances were much more geared towards um, personal connections and and talking. A sensual thing over a sexual thing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Whereas um, I I have some friends who are strippers in the states who 
it's it's really just about kind of grinding on mm. them um until sort of the point just before finish i guess Mm-mm. yeah what about um women asking for lap dances uh i guess um non-binary yes you know do, uh, a, a bigger range of people yeah because again like the 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 stereotype of the strip club yeah is the cd bar yeah with the down on his luck guy yeah or whatever yeah but that must have changed to reflect how society has changed right yeah i i've had a few women customers uh the few regular women that i saw um generally just wanted to drink and have fun um and they were aware and very understanding of the fact that i didn't get paid if all i did was sit around drinking with them so they would pay for my time but it was really just about having fun um i i never personally had a non-binary customer that i knew of um you know i don't want to categorically Mm, say mm, i never mm. had a trans customer because maybe i didn't i didn't recognize them but certainly they never they never outed themselves to me um yeah, but uh, I don't know. That's that's a that would be an interesting thing to look at at um, how the demographic of a strip club changes. Yeah, I'm sure that's depending on. I'm sure that's someone's yeah. master's thesis. Yeah, sure, and which be sure really it interesting. Is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we need to get the poetry back into this conversation. Yes, we've, we've really can, flown off. We can. <laughs> I can easily. Um, just suggest that you read something that's inspired by, I guess, your experiences. And, yeah. and um, but also before that, I want to know when in this sort of area we're talking about, yeah. when does this poetry re-enter your life as yeah. part of, because you said way back that, you know, yeah. you have this need to create something each day and that's so, when as I guess part of your ongoing therapy yeah. and, and self-care, yeah. Does this present itself? I've been trying to think of the answer to that. Mm. Um, I was writing the whole time. Yeah. Um, but you obviously make a decision to share it in some way. And yes. that's how yeah. things start to roll on from there, right? Yeah. Before I started stripping, mm. um, I, ha- I, had been, I had written a few things. Um, and I went to an open mic night with a friend of mine who was the, the featured poet and didn't read anything and was determined not to and right. didn't feel good enough. but wanted to go and see it. But wanted to go and see it. Support your friend. Yeah, yeah. Um, and kind of see what was out there. And there were just some horrendously bad... So you loved it. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. But, um, but it also, you know, because going into it, he was like, you really should read something. Mm. And I was like, no, no, I'm just starting. I'm not good enough. And he was like, I think you're going to find that. You, <laughs> you are. Know, when you see the quality yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's a typical open mic night. Um... And it kind of made me think, oh, actually, uh, even if I am bad, it's actually fine, mm, you know. Mm. Well, um, it's, I was going to say before is it's hard, it's hard not, it's hard to say this and not end up sounding a little, a little bit patronising or whatever. But or cruel, but, or, yeah. yeah, or cruel. But like your your comments and and some of mine around bad poetry. Yeah. There is a case of when people get up and read, actually read it. It's one thing to write bad poetry and yeah. put it out into the world, but when people get up and present it, yeah. and whatever, and maybe they're not even a very good performer either. Yeah. Maybe they're very insular, and yeah. 
it's hard not to go, wow, that person just did something that's really brave. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's really strong of them to do. Yeah. And if they're nervous and uncomfortable with it and struggling, more power to them and more power is being shown. Because imagine... You know, they probably walk away going, shit, I was heaps better than I thought I was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And isn't that great? It is great. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, I think everyone should write. I mm. think open mic nights should always be as supportive as possible. Um, I think the ones I've been to around Wellington, and you know, are. Yeah. Really and good. And I, I love the one where I, The one where I got up for the first time in years and read that you were the, where we met, that yeah. you were the featured guest. I was blown away by how that, yeah. went I thought the yeah. standard was really high it was yeah. and um just there were all these new things in the world of poetry yeah. for me to understand the way that it was introduced yeah. as you know hey we're a safe and yeah. space and if you feel you know people are you know gonna say some stuff that might trigger you yeah by all means just get up and head out and stuff yeah. and it's like that's actually really cool that that's being addressed it because is really cool. because it empowers people to not censor their yeah work you know yep. if they want to they want to write about their horrific experience yeah or even an imagined horrific experience yep. they're not second guessing shit i can't read this tonight mm. they're just saying and you know a lot of people like hearing that stuff yeah. because even if it's difficult to take yes yeah um yeah i think there's some really extraordinary people um like travis Catro from poetry in motion um, a few others that I'm blanking on and I'm going to kick myself for not naming later um, who have put a lot of time yeah. into the Wellington poetry scene yeah. and into and have done an incredible job yeah. um, of, of making it um, a really supportive place, an amazing place to learn yeah. Um, and yeah, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that, you know, as I said my first poetry performance I was dreadful um, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm really grateful that I didn't you know um, so what made you do it shamed. again if that was dreadful? Because um, a lot of people's experience I is to always, do something badly and never, and do, then it never again. do it again. Yeah, I've always been someone who likes to kind of throw myself into the deep end, um, as is evidenced by my first strip club performance <laughs> as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and... I don't know. I'm. I'm. You mentioned this before we started recording, but I'm mm. a little bit like you, where I'm. I'm okay with bombing. Mm, you know. Mm. Um. I did. You know. I lived in Sydney and used to busk on the street for my bus fare and my dinner. Um. You know. I. I did road trips across the states where. Um. I'd run out of petrol and my only way of getting home or or getting a hotel was to stand on the street and mm. sing until people gave me enough money. Um. I've. I've performed in front of. Three Russian sailors and no one else, you know. Um, so a a bad performance is is not something I'm really phased by, and mm. I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, but it's been hard one, you know. I kind of feel like I've paid my dues. Yeah, yeah. Area. I mean, I, I sort of I have this conversation often with people where what you were just describing and and what I was saying to you before about being comfortable about bombing. Yeah. Yeah, it comes from um, doing something a lot. Yeah. And, and or having actual belief and confidence in what you're doing. Like yes. when I said I no longer wanted to 
certainly didn't want to read poetry aloud and probably didn't want to write it. It was because mm. I had stopped believing in what I was doing. Yeah. I guess I believe in it now. Yeah. And so that's why it's very easy for me to go, oh, I'll jump up and have a go at this. Yeah. And I don't, I genuinely, I'm grateful if someone likes it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I genuinely don't care if they don't. And that's a, that doesn't mean I'm not open to criticism yeah. at all. It just means I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. Yeah. And maybe me reading a poem on stage isn't about whether it makes anyone in the audience feel good or happy or yeah. interested. Maybe it's about me getting up and doing that. Yeah. Maybe it's doing something for me. Yeah. And so that's okay. And I, and I think in a lot of our creative endeavours, the way things, delivery mechanisms have changed, people reach <clears throat> levels of fame quickly but to, or, or get known and they haven't done any sorts of, you know, it's a horrible expression really, but hard yards. Mm. They haven't done the time. Mm. So if they're propelled into hit single or mm. great first book and no one knows about them until that's... When someone decides they don't think it's very good mm. and they say, why there's this groundswell of people around them going, you can't say that. Yeah. You know, they're good. And you get musicians who do the very opposite of what, say, your father would have done, mm. uh, which is they make the album and then they learn how to play live mm. and learn how to actually even play their instruments. Mm. So suddenly they have to translate this hit song mm. or album, whereas his generation and era and, and lots of musicians still yeah. learn the instrument, yes. learn... You know, yeah. get booed off stage. Yeah. Go busking, come home with an empty hat. Yeah. All of that shit for so yeah. long and incrementally build up the experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's important to have that. Yeah. And we're, lo we're losing a lot of that. Yeah. We're, we're allowing people to, we're allowing people's overnight success. Yes. To take the place of some genuine toiling. Yeah. 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 I think social media also plays a big part of that because everyone's kind of putting their best selves online mm, yeah and it's it's very difficult to in that situation ad admit to weakness or accept mm. criticism mm -hmm. or you know because you you just want to have these amazing achievements to make all your friends jealous and and show off about mm. um but yeah, as you as you said, I do. I think in a lot of ways that's a generational thing. I remember watching a movie with my dad. I don't remember what it was. Um, I want to say Blues Brothers, but I'm not sure that's right. But uh, there, there's a band playing, and they have a cage in front. Oh of yeah, yeah, no, like, there's the chicken white. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, yeah, we like both kinds of music. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I remember him saying, I "I've been in that situation, but without the chicken wire." <laughs> They start, they start they start playing their blues songs and everyone's throwing bottles at yeah. them and booing and then they start playing the theme from Rawhide. Yes. And everyone starts cheering and, yeah. throw, and throwing even more bottles, yeah. Um, <laughs> the classic scene. Yeah. Uh, so if you were watching that with your dad, sorry to butt in and hijack your thing, but if you were watching that with your dad, what was the what was the life the lesson? The life lesson. <laughs> lesson from Just that. keep playing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got to get paid. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, which was probably very relevant in the strip club. Yeah. I'm sure he'd be turning over in his, <laughs> in his cremated grave to hear me say that. But you know, sometimes you get things thrown at you. Mm, mm. Do you wanna Do you wanna grab the book and read yes. something that 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 I don't tell you to read? Do you wanna choose something? Yes. Um. This is gonna go back a while. Mm. But um. It. it 
I think we've touched a little bit on this. It's it's very difficult to to be having this interview and to not feel like it should be all about Christchurch, mm. um, because it's just so it's it's very present in my mind. Um, I think for people listening, it's going to be very present. Um, I'm trying to find it. I should know my own book better. Um, <laughs> Uh, and this isn't this isn't about Christ, obviously because it mm. was written you know four or five years ago but mm. it is about um, the experience of moving to New Zealand from America mm-hmm. um, and the contrast between those two cultures and there's a couple of lines that feel pretty relevant currently um, hopefully that doesn't feel like I'm hijacking tragedy and making it about myself no, but no, no. <laughs> it's called the New World. I was 10 when I saw the Pacific Ocean for the first time. Jet-lagged at midnight, we turned on all the lights in our new house. Dad sat in front of the TV, counting the channels out loud. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. The beach empty and clean. Mom wondered why no one had bought the land and built apartments yet. I went back last year and the salty air smelled like money. At school, the kids crowded around me. America is cool! You look like Rachel Hunter! I didn't know who she was, but I saw her in a magazine later topless on the beach and smiled. She's on reality TV now, living in LA where it rains formaldehyde. At dinner, I told everyone about Waitangi Day, and we agreed New Zealand did it better. You say it moldy? Like moldy bread. It was the year of the foreshore and seabed before Jim Bolger got Jenny Shipley'd, but we couldn't pronounce Parihaka or Naitahu, or Titakuaru. We thought it was just water and sand. No one told us anyone was angry. Vicky Buck said on camera, Christchurch had a problem with glue sniffers, but they found all 12 of them and got them some help. We couldn't see any homeless people, so we assumed they didn't exist. And maybe they didn't back then. Dad's job paid more, and all of a sudden we weren't living on white bread. My world was smaller and safer. The police didn't even carry guns. Mom let us run barefoot and wild, disappearing for hours, begging money for the bus from strangers, sneaking cigarettes and Smirnoff by the stream behind our house, and you could swim in it back then, before our rivers opened their mouths for Fonterra to piss in. Overwhelmed by public health care, Dad sent us to the doctor for everything, smiling as he shook out the pills into his palms. These barely cost anything. He washed it down with water straight from the tap. It tasted pure, no bleach or poverty. Later, when he died, Aunt Pam would say, if you'd stayed in America, where the doctors know what they're doing. Dirty faces huddle in the New World car park, asking for change. We came here to get away from there, but the distance keeps getting smaller. I'm ten years old again, seeing the Pacific Ocean for the first time, watching pieces of New Zealand drift away, north towards America, right towards America. What's it like, um reading these poems out to me with the recorder because I I love it and I've talked to a few other people about how special it is to basically be an audience of one Mm. but more more than one person listens to this hopefully usually that's the case so um yeah do you is it interesting for you yes um I when I was in the eastern um I learned that I am terrible at recording um, because I can't stand the sound of my own voice and it's very different in my head than it is, <laughs> which I think, mm. you know, most people have mm. that experience. Um, in my head I have this sort of like husky, 
um, Jessica Rabbit sort of voice and then I hear it and it's actually like a little squeaky child's voice. <laughs> and it's always very horrifying. <laughs> um, so I, I sort of learned to, to be very much in the moment while recording um, mm. and to concentrate on whether it's singing or, or reading, to, to concentrate on the words and the, what, I'm, what I'm creating and to kind of let go of whoever's listening um, because otherwise I get very in my head um, and I'm not, <laughs> would, I would just trip myself up tremendously. Mm. Um, it's, it's, yeah, th that's kind of also I find the trick of being on stage where um, you've you got to be in it and, and thinking about you know, because all these poems are autobiographical, mm. I can think about what it was like living those moments and, and what I'm trying to get across when I wrote them and just kind of ignore everything else. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how the book actually came about. Yes. Um, and, and why, you know, why it's a book and, yeah. and how, when you first thought you would do a book and all of that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, so I'd been writing for a while. Um, and a couple of people, this is before I started stripping, um, a couple of people had, from Poetry in Motion, had encouraged me to do a, a little chat book. Yeah. Um, which is often a collection of sort of 15 to 20 yeah, poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'd thought about it, but didn't, at the time I didn't really feel like I um, had anything that I wanted to put out there. Um... And I was very good friends with Dominic Holly, who's one of the publishers of the book now. A.K.A. Tourette's. A.K.A. Tourette's, yes. Yep. Um, and he had said, you definitely should, but be aware you only ever put out your first book once, you know? Mm -hmm. So give it some time, spend some time on, on curating something, and I'll mm -hmm. help you, and we can do a fundraiser, and we'll make it really special, you know? Um... And that kind of really stuck stuck with me. Um, and then I started stripping, and uh, for me, the strip club is such a fascinating kind of microcosm of, of patriarchy. Mm. And that just, I was so <laughs> enamored with that as a metaphor. Um, and the 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 humor and the the potential of of really kind of leaning into those stereotypes about strippers and how they reflect stereotypes about women um was just such a so interesting and and funny and um sort of endless in its in its potential for for writing um that it i it was like the poems just kind of wrote themselves, you know? Um, and I went through a period where I wasn't going to publish the book. Um, I just got the job at Women's Refuge, uh, which is a... Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm talking about a lot of stuff I have to be careful about. It's a tremendous organisation that I have a lot of support for. Mm. Um, but it encompasses two generations of feminism um, one which tends to be very anti-sex work and one which tends to be very pro. Um, and that's a difficult thing politically. Yeah. Um, and although, you know, legally they don't have any claim on, on what I do or publish in my personal life, 
it seemed like too too much, you know, and I wasn't working in a strip club anymore, so it wasn't really relevant. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'd kind of gone through the Chiefs thing and, and gone through the Tony Veach thing, and, and I just, you know, if you write one article about sex work, all of a sudden, every time something happens to a sex worker in New Zealand, you have 10 reporters calling you saying, can you, mm -hmm. you, know, can you give us an interview? And I'd, n I'd never wanted to be, you know, the voice of sex workers all over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was very aware of being kind of boxed in as a writer. Um, and even sometimes it felt like shifted out of being a writer and more into kind of a spokesperson or an mm. advocate. Um, so for a long time I wasn't, I wasn't going to publish it. Um, and then... I don't know, it just feels like it's, it's still a really important conversation. It's something that needs to be talked about. Um, and there are very few women within the industry who, who, who have the privilege or the ability to talk about it. So that feels like a little bit of a responsibility. Do you have much indication, we're talking before the book's actually been released, mm -hmm. but do you, do you have much of an indication or much of a hope for how this will be received by... Um, People familiar, really familiar with the industry you worked in. I guess yeah. I'm opening that up to some of your regular clients or even just people who are frequenters of the establishments right, yeah. as well as obviously the workers. Um, uh, I know that Catherine and a couple of people from the Prostitutes Collective came to see the play that I was in with the Auckland Theatre Company, which featured quite a few of my poems, and they were very positive. Um, which was very heartening for me, you know, because it, it's uh, it's always a very difficult conversation to, mm. to try and be honest about the downsides of the industry while not um, buying into the kind of anti-sex worker rhetoric that, that sometimes surrounds it. Um, so that, that was a big relief. Um, I have... A couple of ex-regulars who follow me on Instagram and are always very positive about what I write, which is lovely. Um, I'm sure some people will hate it, mm. you know. <laughs> um, and that's that's fine, you know. Mm. Um, I, I certainly don't have any intention of burning bridges. Um, but I'm, I'm not particularly bothered if, if a customer or a manager is isn't isn't happy about what I've had to say. You haven't named names or anything, no, so... No, not at all. No. no one's gonna be upset from that yeah. angle. Yeah, and at the end of the day, you know, my experiences are mine. I'm, yeah. I'm entitled to write about them and talk about them as I experience them. You will probably get formally reviewed. Yes. Will you participate in that? Are you expecting to read things that are written about you? Do you imagine you're that sort of person? <laughs> um... I never thought I was, and then I, I avidly read all the reviews of the of the play, mm. um, and even sort of took delight in some of the negative ones because they were funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, probably I will. Mm. Um, I don't. I'm not opposed to criticism. I like learning, and if I disagree with the criticism, I'm fine with that too. Um, Certainly, I, I recently did an interview with Lynn Freeman from Standing Room Only, mm. and she, outside of the interview, had some tremendously positive and encouraging things to say, and that that was... Um, I cried a little bit, actually. It was a, it was a good interview. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, it was I, a good interview. You both did well. I mean, she's... 
she's saying she did well as Silly know, because she's a, a, one <laughs> yeah. of our great yeah. um, seasoned journey person yeah. broadcasters. Yeah. She's a and safe pair of hands. She's just always exceptional. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I was so nervous going into it because it, it was the first time I'd spoken to someone who'd read the poetry that wasn't sort mm. of a friend or an mm. ally. Mm. Um, and I, I always, you know, I build things up and, and focus on the worst possible possible scenario, you know, so I was imagining this, like, really hard-hitting, grilling interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then after we finished, she said, you know, I think this is an extraordinary collection, mm. and, um, you know, we get sent books all the time, and, and we hardly ever review them, but this felt worth it, and... Mm and that she thought I should enter it in the New Zealand Book Awards, that there's a good chance I'll win Best New Collection. And, and I just, I started crying straight away because it was such a relief um, and such an honour, you know, to have someone so intelligent and so extraordinary to have mm. positive things to say about it. Um, well, she's speaking very well there about the fact that so much of the stuff that gets released mm. is, is arguably dime a dozen. Mm. You know, it's not to say the writers are bad. It's just that they are covering the same ground and yes. and only a slightly different way. Whereas, yes, whereas this is a unique collection of poems. There's it really a, is. Um, I want to. I. There's a very specific style that does well in New Zealand, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with you know, the, the creative writing and poetry pro programs on offer yep. that are all very much about particular people's styles. Um, you know, and then you have journals like um, Turbine and... and um, Landfall. Landfall, thank yeah, you. Sport. Um, yeah. That are they're curated by specific people and they like a particular thing. And that's not... Again, that's not to yeah. say that those things are bad. Yeah. They're, they're exceptional. Yeah. There's a lot of amazing poets who write in that style. But it's it's all very similar. Um, it's that kind of academic, very formal style, which there's nothing wrong with. Mm -hmm. I actually, um, uh, Liz Breslin, who um, edited my book, writes beautifully in that style, and mm. I deliberately went to her because I thought it would be good to, you know, I'm just like so very free form. <laughs> mm. It's almost a conversation rather mm. than a poem, mm. and I thought it would be really good to have some someone kind of like rein certain parts of it in. Um, so certainly I'm not opposed to that, but um, th there is a lot of it, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Do you want to read something that comes m sort of more directly from the sex work experience? Yes, I do. Um, let's see. Hopefully you can edit out this... Um... No, the page Long silence. The page turning is riveting, <laughs> and I will keep that in. <laughs> we, um, we just switched to a new printer and we're um, uh, working out paper stock. Right. And there's a book called uh, The Elements of Typographic Style. I don't know if you know it, but mm. it's a, a kind of gold standard for yeah. graphic design. And one of the things he talks about is how the sound of pages turning is a really important part of choosing paper stock. Wow. And yeah. I'd never read it before, but yeah, as soon as I read it, I started going, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was standing there with the graphic designer, like, really intently, you know, feeling yeah. the pages, smelling the pages, turning them. <laughs> I wonder how this one turns. Yeah, this stuff you never imagined you would, you would think about, you know? Yeah. Um, let's go with... Uh, I'm going to read Dean Nature's Rectified Spirit, which is mm -hmm. one of the first poems I wrote. 
um, about about the strip club, um, and actually used to be called How to Take Off Your Clothes, right? Um, which is where the title of the book came from. <coughs> Take the stage. Fill your hands with ghosts. Your hands are denatured, structures unfolding with heat. Is anyone watching? Summon a smaller version of yourself who clogs the shower with yellow hair. Remember high school when you thought you'd be a lawyer? Long, humid days like dogs belly up in the sun, licking their assholes at tomorrow. Grip the pole, move slow, honey on a cold day. Allow your limbs to stretch, denatured, unfolding with heat. Make sure everyone is watching. Throw your eyes on the floor, they skip strobe bright stones on a river of light. Think about your ex-boyfriend, the fight he's forgotten, he called you unprincipled. Imagine his friends watching. Spill your gaze on the floor, blow a kiss to Mr. Vanderwalls in the corner sipping poison. Let him drink you in. You are poison, an attractive and repulsive force. Throw your words on the floor, you don't need them. Forget your real name. Forget how old you are. Your name is denatured, unfit to drink. Your words are poison, unfit to eat. Assume everyone is watching. Yeah, I can see how that used to be called. How to take off your yeah. clothes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it comes, Why did you change it? Um, it comes from, uh, so the fill your hands with ghosts line comes from um, in every strip club right beside the, the pole or at the back of the stage, there's a little glass or a jar of meths, methylated spirits, <coughs> and a cloth that you use to clean the pole. People think it's because strippers are dirty, but it's actually because um, it, it gets sort of uh, condensation mm -hmm. or um, if women have moisturizer or like hair oils on, it makes it very dangerous to do um, any kind of pole dancing because you'll just slip right off. So the meths kind of cuts through that oil um, and makes it safer to, to, to grip the pole. Mm. Um, and uh, it, <laughs> it comes from just an offhand... I was explaining that to someone American, and he in the club he'd ask, what is that at the back of the stage? And I thought, it's meths. And it, it's not called meths in America, it's called denatured spirits, or, or denatured rectified spirits, um, or, or there's other names for it. Mm. <coughs> but I didn't know. So we were having this back and forth conversation where he was like, meth, like the drug. <laughs> and I was trying to explain like, no meths, you know, it's purple. I don't even know what you use it for, like cleaning or something. You can get like vivid off of things. You know, I was mm, trying yeah, to yeah. explain what mess was. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and later I went home and looked it up and the, the description of what it is, um, you know, and then I started looking into like, what does it mean to denature or rectify something? Um, and I got really stuck on that word of denatured. Um, and it, it kind of, stuck with me you know as a stripper you're kind of denaturing yourself you know you're you're removing yes. yourself from your real self yeah yeah um both in personality and a fake name but also you know you have these hair extensions and fake nails and fake tan and and plastic surgery and all of these things that are kind of denatured in mm -hmm. a sense mm -hmm. <clears throat> um and i i guess that was very poetic to me um so i changed it as an attempt to to um, help readers understand that a little bit more. Um, yeah, I don't know if that'll work. <laughs> Sometimes
sometimes you have to trust that your readers yeah. are smart and that they'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Um, but it is a little bit obscure. So. Yeah. They have this to refer to. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so it's helpful. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess you're going to embark on a bunch of a bunch of shows to launch the book. Yeah. You're going to go around the country. Yes. To a few places and do readings mm. uh, with a couple of other people. Yes, Dominic Coey, and then we have a bunch of very talented local poets yeah. from each from each place that we're we're performing in. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I um, I'm excited about being published, but I think I am first and foremost a, a performance poet. Yeah. Um. So it's it's nice to have the opportunity to to read things because um, I I write things to be read out loud. Mm -mm. Um, but yeah. you would have had this before when you when you I mean because I had this once upon a time when you read things out more than one or two at an open mic when you get up and do a set mm. people say do you have a book do you have yes. where, where can I find your poems yeah. you know how can I get them. Mm. And I was actually, it was interesting when you were saying before about holding off on publishing a mm. book. You know, I was saying to someone the other day, I think the greatest thing I ever did in my 20s was not publish a fucking book of poetry <laughs> or, or, or be in a band that actually recorded an yeah. album. Because both, both of those things were very likely possibilities yes. at, yeah. at, at more than one time. Yeah. And I'm really glad, just out of, I guess embarrassment like yeah. I just I, I you know on the one level I wouldn't care yeah. you would move on but I'm just glad there's no lasting document of that because yeah. back because back then you think you've got so much shit figured out I that know. It, you would you would read it and cringe because it would come across as some sort of weird set of instructions <laughs> that are that have no validity at all yeah I I mean I mentioned going back through my old notebooks mm, mm. I am so incredibly grateful that that the internet and social media didn't exist oh, when I was a teenager because yeah. I just yeah absolutely I would be mortified if anyone else had the opportunity to read what I thought I had figured out I have then. I have a beer crate mm. full of folders mm. of typed out pages of mm. poems and I should just burn them or <laughs> put them out every few weeks in the recycling but I suppose because I don't I don't intend to I guess I maybe do intend to one day look at them, otherwise yeah. I would have done that. But it's almost like they're safer hiding yeah. in the storage attic than they are being thrown away because yeah. they might somehow Someone one or two might, of them they might resurface. One or two of them might yeah. blow down the road and I think every artist <laughs> I've got a friend who's a um a carver, he does Jaden Pornoma carvings. His name is Terence Turner, just a little plug for my friends. Um <laughs> Uh, he's got ice cream containers full of his stuff while he was learning. Yeah. Just just boxes and boxes and boxes yeah. um, that he'll never sell. He'll never do anything with. Well, that's good. And he can't. Yeah. You know, they're too small and it's yeah. shitty stone, and he can't yeah. even recarve them. But he says, "I like keeping them around to remind me of yeah of how bad well, I used to be." Again, that sort of speaks to that thing I was talking about about this this sort of immaculate conception of artists these days yeah. that one song sets them off or whatever it's good to, it's good to have some failures around yeah. to, you know artistic failures around yeah. to be reminded of even you don't have to it's probably not wise for your mental health to sort of pour over them and keep keep revisiting and them agonize but just, over them. just yeah. to know that they lurk yeah. somewhere and can be accessed yeah. by you and that you would prefer that they 
cannot be accessed by anyone else is yeah. actually quite a good thing, I think. I also think the lovely thing about about writing as opposed to, you know, sculpting or, or painting is you, you can sort of mine through those old things. Yeah. For, a line, for a thoughts, word. words, Some, metaphors that, that, that work. Yeah, something, you know? that triggers, got, something that triggers a new work. Yeah, there's a poem in here called uh, Sea City that was one of the first poems I wrote. Um, uh, I was drunk when I wrote it. Someone said that Hemingway used to say, write drunk, edit sober. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I did. It was just yeah. the edit sober came, you know, five years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was about the earthquakes, and it was just appalling when I wrote it. Um, really didactic and mm. um, full of sort of the, all these really confusing mixed metaphors. And, um, yeah, it was, it was atrocious, but um, I came back to it and read back over it and thought, actually, a couple of these lines are all right. I'm going to rewrite this. And I did, and now it's in my book. Um, so I think, you know, those things mm. are worth hanging on to just in case you're... And, it, you know, if you're, I think it's um, an amazing exercise if you're suffering from writer's block to go back through yeah. all the things you've written. Well, I think, I think that's exactly why I've got that, mm. that box of old mm. folders, is I think one day... Yeah. Over a series of days, yeah. I will go through that torture to see if it, <laughs> it springs, springs, something springs from it. Yeah. Do you want to, can you read 45? Yes. Yes, I can. Because, for a couple of reasons, and one of them is just like, I, I, I don't know if it's, I think it's the shortest poem in the book. It is, yeah. yeah. And I was like, because it's not that your poems are overly long, but many of them are narrative and, and they crawl down the page. This is just, this sticks out as being so very different. Yes. Um, and then you can say whatever you want to say about it or just read it, but... Cool. <laughs> when I was four, my brother fed me superglue. Not a metaphor, just a true story. He told me it was liquid candy full of vitamins to make my muscles grow. I squirted the whole tube into my mouth. I wanted to be strong enough to beat him in a fight. I remember starting to chew, and then my teeth stuck together. I was scared and confused, but when I tried to scream, I found the sound so tightly trapped, it couldn't make it past my teeth. Yeah, I love that when you read that at the... Um, Thank oh, you. Yeah, I really loved that. I um, was... Hopefully people get... It's called 45 because it's about Donald Trump, the 45th yeah. president of yeah. the United States. And that experience of uh, being duped into something that you think will make you better... And um, so you say in the poem it's not a metaphor and then you hide... It actually is a metaphor. You, the poem yeah. that you hide a metaphor yes. quite deeply inside the poem. Trixie yeah, of yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then just that kind of creeping horror of, mm. of not being able to reverse that decision. Um, yeah, which in, in, in some ways, again, I keep coming back to it because I can't stop thinking about it, is, is very relevant to what's happening mm. in Christchurch at the moment. Mm. That, um, I think a lot of uh, young white men are, are pulled into these ideologies because they are growing up in a society that for the first time isn't, isn't overwhelmingly supportive of them. Um, you know, they're being asked to be held accountable for things that they've never had to be held accountable before and that's uncomfortable and mm -hmm. then they get sort of seduced into this this ideology of of what's going to make them stronger and and reclaim that power and and reclaim that sort of contract that their that their fathers made with society which is if you 
go to university and get a job and 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 work hard you will have a wife and a family and a house mm. and um and a comfortable life mm. and the way that you live will never be questioned and that's not true for our generation anymore mm. so you have all these very angry confused displaced young men who are then being told you have so much privilege compared to everyone else which is true yeah um and they should take a step back and acknowledge it but it's hard um and that kind of that kind of creeping horror of of how seductive it would be if if someone came along and said hey you have a right to be proud of being white mm. or of or of being a man you don't have to feel guilty um, and how dare these people try to hold you accountable and, and actually get angry, fight back. Um, and how easily that kind of slides into hatred um, and eventually violence. It's 100% fear at the root of it, isn't it? Yeah. It's fear of being, you know, wiped out, yeah. reduced, yeah. unheard, yeah. not valued. And that fear... Create, you know, moves into, yeah. informs and moves into yeah. hatred and yeah, yeah. which um, you know, as a as a as a four year old kid, um, the idea of some some tasty liquid vitamins <laughs> that would help me not be bullied by my brothers was <laughs> too much. Was, to... <laughs> it was very seductive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is worrying. This sort of like, you know, this epidemic of old white men in charge mm. running boardrooms mm. running countries mm. running things mm. it is that in itself is worrying but what what you just presented there that's so true is the the need to <clears throat> replace them with not the same model yeah is creating this underbelly of yes. young kids that are suddenly feeling like well now yeah now I'm the picked on one. Now I'm the one with no chance. And yeah. It's, how do we, how do we navigate through this one problem? Yeah. Without promulgating this enormous yeah. problem underneath. Well, there's know? there's some really fascinating studies that have been around for a while around. So, for example, they they studied classrooms where um, uh, they recorded. Uh, the number of times that teachers called on men versus women in a, a university and high school discussion. Mm. And they found that, first of all, even teachers who were trying to be fair always called on men more than they called on women um, consistently. But also that the men in the room felt that the conversation was equal when women were being called on about 15% of the time and felt that the conversation was dominated by women when women were being called on 30% of the time. Um, and there's lots of studies in similar veins where it, basically the root of it is if you have always had privilege, equality feels like a loss of your rights when it's actually just equality. You know, you, you get used to having a particular thing and then when you have to share that thing, it feels very unfair, even if you having it was never fair. Which was... Place rather horrifyingly summed up by the Australian Prime Minister the other week, yes. Scott Morrison, with, yes. his, with his, we want women to come up, but not at the expense of other people. Yeah. Um, what you just described, that was yes. him, his speech in a nutshell. Yeah. Um, and 
That's a really difficult thing to navigate. Mm. I mean, my answer is we've put up with it for a long time. Um, so grow up, you big baby. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, obviously that's, um, that's a difficult conversation to have, you know, and there's a lot of people who are going to be angry at that response. Um, yeah. Yeah, my, my response is, uh, well, my idea is, uh, well, when I say it's my idea, I'm sure it's plenty of people's, <laughs> I'm not claiming it, but the thing that I think of the most that, that goes some way towards addressing something would yeah. be for boardrooms and governing bodies to have a mandatory 52% women, yeah. 48% yeah. men. Like, that's actually... Yeah. Redressing the, you know, that's actually yes. redressing the balance. That's yeah. actually saying, this is these are the new parameters yeah. because the pen, pendulum has to swing yes. back a bit further yeah. to to then. Yeah, I, I. And so remember. I, you know, someone might say there's all sorts of problems around that, but I think there's surely all sorts of problems with exactly the system we have now. That's right. That's <laughs> that's exactly it. It's like I don't think this is making it worse. This yeah. would make it worse. Yeah. I think the hope is it would make it better, and that. That in some small way is a huge start. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean that that's the thing that it shouldn't make me laugh, but it kind of does. Which which all of the criticisms of of all kinds of left wing ideologies is this idea of like, well, what about all these problems? Mm. And you think, look at where we are now. Yeah. You know, it's not the world is on fire. We're not. <laughs> We're not looking to fuck something that's fixed. It's yeah. quite the opposite. Things, things are very obviously broken. Mm. And if you are denying that, you are willfully ignorant. Mm. Um, so this this idea that we might accidentally mess up a beautiful system that's working for a majority of people is absolutely ridiculous. Um, so, you know, why not try? Particularly when... when the, the benefit of that is that a, a greater range of people are represented mm. um, and there there might be a reduction in some really awful aspects of our society. Um, yeah. Where are you at with, um, with America these days? Um, funny you should mention that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never thought I'd move back. Um, but then again... There was always a little part of me, like if someone said, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? And I would always say upstate New York. Not New York City, but um, mm. a little further up, you know, the Catskills or mm -hmm. Sleepy Hollow, those kind of small towns um, closer to the mountains. Because um, it's just so beautiful there, you know? And I, I am a city girl, um, so I love, you know, I want to be two or three hours away from a city at any time. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and I've recently started a relationship with a, a comedian, um, and there's no better place for comedy than New York. Um, so, good comedian or bad? Because I imagine good. you'd like either. But I don't know. <laughs> I don't think that... I would date either. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was going to say there might be a distinction on dating, but um, I have a friend of mine who he was telling a story of. He was at a, a comedy show and one particularly racist and sexist comedian came on stage and he got absolutely deadpanned, no audience reaction, except that about five seconds after he told the joke and no one laughed. My friend was in the back laughing, but he was laughing at the fact that no one was laughing. And then, 
had to realize people just think I'm supporting a racist comedian. <laughs> but I actually just think it's hilarious that yeah. he's doing so poorly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's a, he's a good comedian. Um, uh, yeah, so it, I don't know where I'm at with America. Certainly I wouldn't move back while Trump is president. Mm. Um, and I think the next few years are going to be a really interesting to see how America copes and how that affects the rest of the world are going to be pretty interesting. Um, this recent event in Christchurch has really, you know, I've always said New Zealand is a much safer, yeah, more welcoming place to raise kids and... Um, it's really shaken that up for all of us, it hasn't really it? Has. We, we, yeah. we did all on some level believe some version of that. Yeah. Not here. Yeah. That'll never, that never happen here. Yeah. This is why people move here yeah. or stay here. Yeah. Yeah. And now um, we're being asked to um, to re-examine that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. Good question. Mm. I'll have to figure the answer yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Now, now we've had a big old chat, and we've and we've kind of almost technically never met. We've met, met very briefly before <laughs> yeah. this, so I'm always amazed when um, I can have a conversation with someone that goes this long yeah. when I don't know them very well. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, Me too. Is there anything you want to put across before we wrap up? Um. Bearing in mind you're going to read Daddy Issues Part yes. 2. I guess I should finish. talk about those poems yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Um Because I always read them and I never talk about them and I think yeah. it's quite confusing for yes. people. okay. So they came about um, largely as a joke um, when customers would ask or people outside of the strip club would ask, you know, how did you end up in this industry or, mm. or what's happened in your life? Or I just always thought it was funny to say Daddy Issues. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so I, I sort of, you know, I was like, well, wouldn't that be funny if I wrote a poem called Daddy Issues, um, about my actual issues with my father, which everyone has, mm. you know, nobody, there's no one in the world doesn't, that doesn't have a complicated relationship with their parents. Um, and then I was watching Pretty Woman, the kind of iconic sex work mm. movie. Mm. Um, and it sort of struck me, anyone who's watched the movie recently, first of all, how just absolutely insultingly idiotic Julia Roberts's character is and how I really don't remember that film it, it's and worth watching it? again okay. just as a I have seen it a, but I've seen it social like commentary. way back yeah I you imagine know, it's you, not aged well no at all yeah <laughs> Yeah. Um, you have this older, remarkably brilliant man yeah. um, falling in love with this absolute imbecile yeah. who um, you know <laughs> There's a scene where she's talking about leaving school really early and, and she says, oh, I bet you're really smart. How far did you get in school? And he says, I went all the way. And she's like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, yeah. Um, and then you kind of realize Richard Gere's character's whole sort of character arc is about his relationship with his father and how... You know, he, he grew up with this kind of cold, unfeeling father who was very focused on business. And then his kind of climax as a character is when this sort of kindly older businessman says, oh, I'm proud of you, son. And he's able to, like, heal enough to accept this woman in his life and, and allow himself to be loved. And 
it kind of struck me how absurd it is that you have all these tremendously powerful men in, in positions of tremendous power um, who are really in, in large part defined by their daddy issues, but you never hear that bandied about for men. Um, and, and you never hear men's sort of emotional outbursts or, or ridiculous behavior reduced to nothing more than, than daddy or mommy issues. Um, and yet it's, it's used to invalidate all kinds of things from women, mm -hmm. um, emotions, statements, relationships, life decisions. Um, so the, the, what started as a joke kind of became this sort of little bit of a feeling of outrage. Um, yeah, which is, um, a lot of what I try to do in my writing, particularly with this book, is to, I guess, uh, lean into some of the very nasty things that are said about sex workers mm. and women and to say, what if, you mm. know? What if I am... Yeah, so what? So what? Yeah. You know, maybe I am a slut. Maybe I do have daddy issues. Maybe I did smoke a lot of pot while I was working in there. Um, you know, maybe I was depressed and hopeless and um, needed a job that I couldn't show up to. And, you know, all, all mm. kinds of things that you could say about a sex worker. And then to say, actually, I'm, I'm still a human being and a pretty successful person. And I've done some extraordinary things with my life. Um, so how dare you invalidate anything I have to say because of those things? Mm. And if that can be true for me, it can be true for anyone. Um, yes, which is a lot to say about two poems. But <laughs> no, it's good to say it. <laughs> yeah. It's good to say it because it's the, it's also, I mean, and the way you've structured it with those at the beginning and the end, yeah. a, a large part of what you just said then is, is the part of the overriding theme of the book. Yes, it's, it's the, kind it's, of the, it's, the, the thesis, thesis statement of the collection. Yeah, it's, so the, it's, energy, it's the energy around the poems. Yeah. They, don't, yeah. they don't all speak to that exact experience, but they do all come from it, yes, if that makes sense. exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so this is Daddy Issues Part 2. She said, the relationship is good, apart from the beatings. She said, I know it's not abuse because he's sorry afterwards. She said, he cries in my arms, even after he broke one of them. Fet life is full of sad men. Call themselves daddy, frightened, no one else will. Wear their heart on your raw red cheeks. George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr. Donald Trump Sr., Donald Trump Jr. He said, I don't want to be my dad, but pawned the wedding ring anyway. He gripped my shirt with knuckles bloody and cried and cried and cried over the man he had not become. He said a firm handshake is essential to making a good impression. He said, I'm the tallest person in my family. Eventually, wait till your father gets home, died unwatered at the back of her throat. When my brother knocked me down, she'd say the heavenly father would deal with him someday. Brock Turner's father begged the judge not to punish him for 20 minutes of action. His face tattooed under the tongue of every young woman in America, women whose fathers stood silent in shame, knowing they had held an ink-dripping needle once too, into the mouths of someone else's daughter. Most of the men who have loved me had lost respect for their mothers. Researching to forgive their fathers turned into them in the end anyway. Most of the men who have paid for my time have daughters younger than me, have wives who looked like me when she was what they wanted, turned me into her in the end anyway. 
What does forgiveness mean when the only thing it changes is yourself? Mm -hmm.